This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Becca and Terry. The gang is gathered and uh, working all night. That's how we do this. Terry has been up all night long. Uh, is that right, Terry? No. Okay. Becca, have you been up all night? Uh, yeah, unfortunately I was, because I didn't see until too late that the tax deadline was extended. So. Oh, yeah. Oh. The website, the IRS.gov oh, oh, went, went down. So they extended it till midnight. So happy tax day again. Hey, congratulations. <laughs> Woohoo! Darn it. Yeah, you're, you're tired. Yeah, people went on and they went, oh, look, everything's going just as expected. This is just not quite the cr- The critiques are like, you know, it's kind of interesting when you have a division of the government that's still using some computer software that was yeah. made when JFK was president. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad everybody made it. And by the way, I've already paid your taxes. Oh, that's right, because you did it twice. Yeah, I like to pay twice. So I what do they it... do with that? You pay twice? Well, because the system's down. We we could stop it, but we anyway. It, it's a everyone tells us don't stop payment on one of the things because oh. the federal government doesn't like that. Even gonna, even if you paid the other one, anyway. Thought you were going to say believe in. I don't know who you're supposed I to. That that was I don't know to. who you're supposed to believe in. Right. So don't it's stop. Not, not the IRS believing in anyone. Hmm. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, Barbara Bush passed away. She did. Ninety-two years uh. of age. By the way, the mother of a president, the wife of a president, the mother of a presidential candidate. Governor. Governor. The mother of two governors, right? A Texas and Florida governor. Mm-hmm. This is quite a female. Passed away. Uh, um, Somebody said the pearls were fake, but the woman was very real. Yeah, she was great. She really was great. And um, had six children. One died from leukemia. Married 70, like 72 years, I think she was married. Wow. Her, That's amazing. Married the married her first and only kiss, her first kiss, and her only man she's ever kissed. Married the man and was married to him for seventy two years. Becca yeah. just gave me this look like wow. That's that's really impressive. I mean, That's some dedication. Talk about yeah. She's and, accuracy. By the way, was the wife to the <laughs> accuracy nailed it? Clear aim she every time. That yeah. kiss. Yep. Uh, by the way, um, married a, a man that eventually President Herbert Walker Bush was the head of the CIA. And she said, which is really ironic because she's horrible at keeping secrets. That's why she wasn't in yeah. the CIA. Yeah. That's why she never could have been in the CIA. That, that's a tough uh, relationship to have because you can't really talk about work. Right. Yeah. It's like, but, what'd you do today? Can't talk about it. All right, great. Don't want to talk about it. Can't talk about it. Unless you create like a whole new set of code names just to be able to talk at work. So yeah. you would have to find... You'd have to have a, a, a rich relationship yeah. so you could have other things to talk Especially about. Especially because this was pre-Netflix. Oh, wow. So, I mean, what would you share? Oh. Wow. It's weird. Back then, they used to read books to each other. Yeah. Oh. How did they do that without electricity? No, they had, they had electricity back then. Oh. oh. Yeah. Um, speaking oh. of uh, CIA directors, lots of interesting news about Mr. Pompeo. 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 Yes. Pompeo, yeah. Uh, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What should we be focused on? One person died Tuesday after a Southwest Airlines plane had an engine failure and was forced to make an emergency landing in Philadelphia. The National Transportation Safety Board said this is the first accident, accidental domestic airline fatality in nine years. Wow. The Southwest plane was en route from New York to Dallas with 144 passengers and five crew members when the engine failed in midair. 
Passenger Matt uh, Tranchin told ABC News he heard a huge explosion and glass shattered three rows ahead of me. And the passenger, Cassie Adams, said a woman was sucked out of a broken window. <gasps> Two male passengers were able to pull her back in. They performed CPR on the woman with uh, one of the men actually blocking the window to protect the other passengers. So one, one, two guys re- get up, pull the woman back in. He gets in front of the window. Other people are performing CPR as the pilot is trying to rapidly descend from 32,000 feet to 10,000 feet, which is like so dropping in an elevator. Yeah. So all this is going on. People's eardrums burst because of the rapid uh, Pressure, depressurization of the cabin. Uh, they go on to say the plane was going down. I was terrified. You had people on apps trying they're like recording their last message to loved ones type of thing wow. going on so really terrifying moments uh they're saying the men that uh pulled the woman back in block the window or you know heroes yeah. the C- people performing cpr the oh, pilot yeah. yeah everyone doing these things just oh, to try to save scary. them seven people sustained minor injuries but were not taken to hospital the woman that was sucked out the window was brought back in she later died in the hospital oh. And it was all just this engine that has had some past issues, that oh, type no. of engine. Yeah. And something flew off the engine that may have hit the window, I guess. It exploded, and the shrapnel hit the hit side the of the window. plane. So there were several punctures in the side of the plane, but also the window was shattered. So yeah, yeah. Just a, a crazy situation. I turned on the news yesterday. You see an airplane and sitting at an airport somewhere, and you're like, uh-oh, what happened? Oh, boy. That, yes. So that investigation will continue. Uh, speaking at Mar-a-Lago Tuesday with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, President Trump said the U.S. government has had direct talks with North Korea at extremely high levels. Trump this morning confirmed that reports that uh, CIA Director Mike Pompeo made a secret trip to North Korea. He said he said it was last week. Others had said it was over Easter, yeah. so, you know, whichever. To meet with leader Kim Jong-un, the meeting was in part of an effort to lay the groundwork for the expected summit between Trump and the Korean leader, or North Korean leader. When Trump agreed to meet with Kim, he was uh, accepting the invitation that came secondhand from South Koreans. So this is the first direct right. contact, allegedly. But, I mean, this is the guy that will be the Secretary of State. Right. And he knew that at the time, right? So the guy that will be the Secretary, our Secretary, our future Secretary of State just well, met with Kim Jong-un. Maybe. He, he's facing the tough confirmation. He may win confirmation by one vote. Yeah. And he'll need to get a Democrat to jump sides. To Well, but he's now also the guy that just met with Kim Jong-un. And that's why they're doing it, to kind of make it look like, well, he's already kind of you know yeah. involved in this huge you process. Guys, okay, wow. you want to mess this up, guys? Trump said Tuesday that five sites are being considered to host the historic meeting and promised to bring up uh, abductees with Kim, which is a big issue for Japan. Oh yeah, there's some Japanese issues, abductions and stuff going on. So, all that, all the, all that is involved in this. And so, uh, the IRS service on Tuesday granted a filing extension for taxpayers after its internal systems experienced technical problems. So the IRS direct pay online service was temporarily unavailable through much of the day on Tuesday. So yeah, computers failed again. We've talked about those computers. Really, I mean, they're running on. Pre Microsoft computers. Yeah. It's a bunch of Game Boys all hooked up, I'm yeah, pretty yeah. sure. One big Game Boy. Uh, Fox News issued a statement Tuesday saying they were unaware of Sean Hannity's informal relationship with Michael Cohen, the uh, lawyer for Trump. Yeah. Adding that Hannity continues to have our full support. Hannity has received criticism for failing to disclose that he was a client of Cohen when. Con- Covering the lawyer's, lawyer's raid on uh, the raid on his offices, 
on Fox News. He has since tried to distance himself, saying he never really paid Cohen and only had a few conversations with him about real estate. The Atlantic published a restraining order involving a radio commentator in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that is signed by two people identified as counsel for Sean Hannity. One of those lawyers is currently a member of Trump's legal team. The other was asked to join the legal team but couldn't because of conflicts of interest. So now there's three lawyers connected to Trump that Hannity has used for personal legal reasons. Wow. But, you know, it's just real estate. We're just talking real estate. It's not a big deal. And uh, Chuck Todd, NBC News, Meet the Press. He's like, I can't believe that there's nothing coming out of this when it comes to punishment or like an official sort of shaking of an angry fist of like, why are you messing with our credibility? Yeah, so you don't have to cite. Yeah, he was saying. So Fox is saying that you can't trust our people because they're not going to tell you. They're not going to cite their their problems. They're not going to cite their... CNN media critic points out, he goes, Fox treats their opinion hosts different than their news hosts. Mm. That's what this comes down to. And and he he made a really good point. that The Fox journalists that are really the real journalists like in D.C. are incredible. They're great at what Mm -hmm. they do. They really do an awesome job. But then the the critic side of the Fox journalism. The opinion side. They always have to carry the water for each other. Right. Mm. And finally, four-year-old Damian Schrader of uh, Pennsylvania loves playing with his toys. He loves riding his bike with his friends. Who doesn't? He's always been a very serious child, but I think he wasn't quite ready for that kind of thing, his mother said. That kind of thing is a summons for jury duty. (laughs) It showed up this week at his great-grandmother's mailbox ordering the preschooler to show up at the county courthouse. When asked if he understood the summons, Damien sweetly shook his head no. Damien's own mom had never been summoned for jury duty, and Damien had only ever gotten one other letter in the mail, and it was from Santa Claus. So Damien's parents went to the county courthouse, explained the situation. There were a few laughs. The little boy was granted a formal Excuse. Oh, thank you. Although the court administrator uh, told a local news station that he's certain that Damien will make a fantastic juror in about 15 years or so. Wow. I mean, you know what that means, obviously. Santa Claus is selling his list That's to the jury. That's what it is. He's oh, man. Selling data. That's how Santa Claus That's is keeping it Cambridge Analytica all that- over again. <laughs> North Pole Analytica. Have you heard of them? Boy, you can't trust anybody any days. Mm. Hey, uh, up next, we're going to be talking about government regulation. When we talk about Cambridge Analytica or analytics um, and uh, what the what the impact it had on uh, Facebook and social media, do we really want government to now step in and start regulating our social media? Or is that going to end up creating bigger problems? Up next, we'll be talking to a professor who's written an article about why we we might want to slow down in turning some of these rights over to government. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Social media is something we cannot avoid. It's part of our world now. And last week, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg testified in front of Congress for its part in the Cambridge Analytics leak of information. Would government regulation solve these problems? Well, here to speak with us today is Paul Levinson, a professor of communications at Fordham University in New York. He also appears regularly on CNN and MSNBC, Fox News, the Discovery Channel. 
he's out there uh, trying to to just inform and educate all of us on what's going on in um, in our social media world and and in the communication world overall. Dr. Paul Levinson, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Talk to us. Uh, I mean, about this. The, the the Cambridge Analytics is a it's a really complicated thing, but in the end, um, through social media sources, they were able to access a lot of data, a lot of information about a lot of us. And because of that, Congress has now decided, okay, it's going to maybe start regulating our social media. But you think this may not be a great idea? I think it's a terrible idea, and here is why. Uh, the only thing that keeps a democracy free, at least if you look uh, back on history, is media and journalism and reporting and all kinds of communication, even filmmaking, that is not controlled by government. Mm. And that's why our founding fathers, or at least some of our founding fathers, in particular Thomas Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, most of those people were from Virginia. In fact, all three of those were. Mm. But others joined them. That's why they put the First Amendment into the Bill of Rights. It's not the Tenth Amendment, it's not the Fifth, it's not even the Second Amendment. They thought this was so important. Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or press that they made it first and foremost. And as a matter of fact, there was a lot of debate back then about should we have such a strong federal government? Is this going to endanger the liberty that People fought so hard to get in the Revolutionary War. And uh, the Bill of Rights in general and the First Amendment in particular were the safeguards that were put in at the very founding of our nation to do everything possible to make sure the government didn't get too powerful. Hmm. Now, how do we – so if the federal government doesn't step in to to create some of these protections, then um, are are we just to trust that the social media groups will? Yes, and that's not such a strange thing. I mean, if you think about business in general – and it's certainly the case that social media are a kind of business. But if you think about any business, it succeeds if people are happy with it, right. if people are comfortable with the product. It doesn't succeed if people are unhappy with it. So clearly, I think it's, a, it's also not a very good thing. In fact, I would be furious if my personal information were you know, pilfered off Facebook or any other social site. But the best way of dealing with that is the, the users of Facebook should let Facebook know they don't want to have their information uh, publicly available like that on a system that's available to people who can hack it or even get on there legally. It's not such a complicated thing. The other point here that's worth making is if you watch that uh, testimony, uh, Zuckerberg's testimony and the questions that were asked of him, uh, it's clear to me that uh, I'm a college professor. The average student in any one of my classes knows far more about (laughs) social media than than senators and uh, people in Congress. So you're asking people who are fundamentally ignorant 
of social media to go in and regulate social media. That's a prescription for serious problems. <laughs> it's true. And, and well, and Facebook already, they their market cap took a big hit. I mean, they they lost a lot of money because of this scandal. So it is, it is kind of self-regulating in that they're losing people and they're losing, uh, I mean, a lot of, a lot of big name, uh, like, um, just big name people and and companies and corporations are pulling away from Facebook, or at least saying, "I don't want my information out there." Yeah, that's that's uh, exactly the point. And look, another aspect of this is we have a person who's president of the United States, uh, and a day doesn't go by in which he doesn't lash out at the media. He's even said he thinks too much attention is paid to the First Amendment. He thinks that there should be some federal regulations, not having to do with Facebook, but just the media in general, because any news that's unwelcome to this president, he denounces as fake news and, and says something needs to be done about it. So especially with someone like that in office, this is the worst possible time to introduce federal regulation into uh, social media. That's true. I mean, even if you loved uh, President Trump today, you may not love the next one. You didn't maybe love Obama. And so to turn this power over is a is a very big deal. Is it? I mean, I guess too. We the the founding fathers probably never could have imagined um, some of these social media sites or some of the the ways that the press would change, the ways that media would change. Um, but you're still saying overall, it be we need to be very slow to 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 impede uh, freedom of speech in any way, shape, or form. That's exactly right. Look, the only kinds of communication that people had back in the days when our country was founded were speech, handwritten letters, and the press. So that not only were there no social media, there were no electronic media. There, there, there was no radio, no television, right. no motion pictures. And, you know, uh, throughout history, the Supreme Court has made some really dumb decisions. For example, in 1915, there's a famous case, Mutual Film Company versus the State of Ohio, in which then the Supreme Court ruled that motion pictures were not protected by the First Amendment because they weren't really any kind of political communication, because no political documentaries had been made back then. And they said it's just a form of entertainment. The government can and should regulated. It wasn't until the 1940s that the Supreme Court saw the error of its ways. But saying that social media somehow, you know, are not part of the press really overlooks the fact that uh, millions and millions of Americans, and it's only increasing, not decreasing, get their news from Twitter and Facebook. And, you know, some people may not like that, but that's the reality, you know, if you're 15 years old, if you're 20 years old, if you're 25 years old, if you're 30 years old, you don't watch the evening news. Uh, you know, even I don't watch the evening news right. anymore. I'm that much older. But, you know, these are vital media. They give information to us all the time. Yes, there's, they make mistakes, but the best way of dealing with these areas is 
encouraging the media themselves to stay on top of it. Well, and I guess one thing you could do as legislators, you don't have to necessarily go start um, creating legislation to control the media, but you could just hold hearings. Just their holding of hearings kept this in the news a lot longer than Zuckerberg would have wanted it to be. Yes, I think that's a very good idea. And look, you know, Facebook uh, was pretty arrogant, uh, and they've been arrogant throughout their history. And, you know, when they were first, uh, you, you know, put in the spotlight because people were saying, hey, you know, there was a lot of false and fake news stories, not what Trump considers fake news stories, which is anything he doesn't like, but real fake news stories. Yeah. It, you know, like Hillary Clinton running a child predation uh, operation right. in a pizza parlor in Washington. You know, Facebook's first response is, hey, what do you want from us? We're just a place where people come on and talk to their friends. And that kind of arrogance hurt Facebook. Uh, but I think Facebook has learned its lesson. And part of the reason it's learned its lesson is indeed because of these here. So the hearings are great. Regulation is not. Uh, We're speaking with Dr. Paul Levinson, who's a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University in New York City. And uh, he's a a major um, guest that appears on many of the the big uh, talk shows and talk uh, stations. Um, Paul, is, is there a difference, though, and you tell me, you're the expert, of speech and data management and data mining and um, the rights that a lot of us have with our data to keep our data free, um, is, is that a different component to the the other um, discussions we're having about social media? They are different to some extent, and that's why this is so complicated. Uh, if somebody is standing up talking somewhere and some police officer comes over or an FBI person comes over and says, you can't talk, that's a clear-cut case of interfering with someone's communication. If a newspaper is shut down, that's a clear-cut case. Mm. Basically, regulating social media so that they don't make their data so publicly available, I would agree is not such a clear-cut case. But the problem is when you bring in the government to regulate any communication system in any way, history has shown that once it gets its foot in the door, it stays and it gets more and more obtrusive. And and here's, unfortunately, an example that we're still seeing the consequences of. The Federal Communications Commission was created back in the 1930s to do one thing, to make sure that radio stations didn't broadcast in frequencies that were so close to each other that they interfered with each other and drowned each other out. Mm. Because back in the 1930s, they didn't even have FM radio. And, you know, we've all experienced this. If we've listened to the radio in our car, you know, before there was satellite radio, you drive from one city to another, and a, another radio station starts coming in, and for a brief period of time, you can't hear any radio yeah. station. So this is what the FCC was created to do. And not only that, it was written into the Federal Communications Act that the uh, FCC should not consider the content of radio stations when it gives licenses to radio stations. Well... Unsurprisingly, 
within a few years, that's exactly what the FCC started doing. And, you know, I'm sure uh, most of the listeners are aware of what happened when Janet Jackson uh, right. had a wardrobe right. malfunction. Right. CBS was fined millions of dollars for that. That has nothing to do with frequencies and, you know, whether you're 540 or 545, you know, on, on the dial. And this, unfortunately, is what happens when the government gets involved. It can't help itself. It starts doing things that even if the law says it's not supposed to do it, even if the statute says don't do it, they do it anyway. So that's really, you know, uh, an example that we all should keep in mind. Any time anyone says, well, okay, we're not going to censor Facebook, but, yeah, we need the government to come in and regulate Facebook in some way. Is 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 it the same thing? I thought also that this was because the airwaves were owned by the people and they were a shared resource, even supported in some ways by the government. So it was a, sh- a shared asset. But is is there already a legal precedence that the Internet is something that they can control? Well, this uh, public airways thing I always thought was nonsense uh, anyway. Uh, it is true that everyone owns the air, but, uh, you know, electromagnetic carrier waves were never part of government. They were never part of the people. They were independent corporations uh. that actually built the equipment and, and sent out uh, the waves. And the argument that, hey, the government needs to regulate radio and television because they're broadcast over the public airwaves. That was brought in later to justify the kind of content regulation that uh, I was just talking yeah. about. But um, as far as uh, anything that's not on the public airwaves, there is already a precedent that the government needs to keep its hands off cable operations precisely because they they don't have anything to do with broadcasting mm. per se and the same is true with streaming uh, on Netflix Amazon Hulu and so forth and if anything the internet is much closer to those streaming stations than it is to a uh, to a broadcast operation interesting yeah um, what do you think about this idea now we're saying we're hearing from others that you know, the Internet is a right. Everybody in the world has the right to access the Internet. And so some governments might even be stepping in to facilitate that. Uh, is, is that. Is that also too much government intrusion into something like the web? Well, I have no problem if the government does things like build better ways that people's smartphones can operate you know so even here in new york for example uh... when i'm driving from my home to where i teach at fordham university uh... there's a big uh, roadway it's called the sprain brook parkway and i'm still amazed that here in two thousand eighteen i'm driving down the parkway and there's like about a three minute you know, period of time <laughs> when basically I, I, you're I in no man land. Exactly. So, it, it, you know, if we're talking about the government uh, anywhere in the world improving <laughs> the infrastructure, yeah. hey, I'm all for it. Yes. Yeah. But again, that's not regulating in any way. You know, if the government wants to give money to something, if the government wants to help people, uh, uh, you know, get online, use the internet, that, that's that's fine and wonderful. 
what I, I guess the then the key to this would be if we want to keep government out, then we as buyers we have to be more aware. We have to we have to have our heads on a little bit stronger and and understand and maybe be a little more involved. That's absolutely right. And you have to know yourself. You have to know why you're on a particular system, why you're using it. So, you know, I said before that I would be very unhappy, you know, if somebody took my data. But you want to know the truth? For the most part, I wouldn't be unhappy because if you look at my Facebook page, you see the titles of my books, you know, announcements of various things that I'm doing, classes that I'm teaching. I don't care if anybody knows about that. I don't care if Cambridge Analytica takes that data and sells it. I don't know who they would sell it to, but hey, maybe uh, I'm also a science fiction author. Maybe somebody will be interested in reading one of my novels that wouldn't have known about it beforehand. So, you know, in my case, uh, honestly, I don't care all that much about that. But but I do recognize that there are a lot of people, including in my own family, you know, my wife feels strongly, hey, she wouldn't want... You know, uh, it, not that there's any yeah. personal information, but she feels you know she wants her privacy. So, yes, I think each person has to know what they want in their experience, and the more that they're in touch with their own goals and using social media, the happier they'll be. Yeah, great stuff, Dr. Paul Levinson. Thank you so much for your time and your insights into uh, government and social media. Again, Dr. Paul Levinson is a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University. Um, uh, you can go uh, Google him, go find out more information about his books, his work, really uh, doing what he can, I think, for all of us to make sure that we we can be a little bit safer and, and more realistic about what's going on in this battle over social media. Don't just assume that the government steps in and and makes everything, uh, you know, tries to minimize their impact. A lot of times government might maximize their impact. Anyway, we'll continue the journey doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. A coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, folks, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, there's when something goes wrong, it's usually when we start hearing everyone complaining about it, right? Uh, where were all the complaints before the Cambridge Analytica problem? Some people were complaining, and those were the people that were probably most informed, um, those on the cutting edge of the whole issue. But uh, but he, he makes a great point. Um, Dr. Levinson makes a great point that be careful in, in being really quick to regulate, especially letting the government regulate, because, you know, when you let the camel's nose in under the tent, it's coming in. Um, and remember that regardless of your uh, politic, you, you may – you got to be careful because – Anybody could put their person in there and and start doing what they need to do. Um, remember some with President Trump, the idea about PBS and Sesame Street and cut the funding to children um, television and network and all of these issues that started to come up. It's um, you know this is a big deal and. If everyone were just neutral and out for the best interest of the whole country, that would be great. But sometimes politics gets in the way and 
uh, decisions are made by people that don't necessarily understand the whole depth of the issue. So what do you do? Do you? I guess you you got you can just complain about it. You can just whine about your lack of freedom. Or there are some other things that you might do, and I wanted to throw some of these other ideas out there so that maybe you could become a change agent instead of just a you know a pain in the neck um, and a complainer. One thing we could all do is try to understand the issue better. So instead of complaining about what's going on with social media, um, we could start actually using that same energy to understand the deeper pain behind the issue, identify what's really going on. Uh, understand it, research it. Don't just research it from your favorite three sites that you always go to. Dig deeper, dig wider, and try to understand the issue at a completely different level. And then see what that does to you. By gathering more and more information, do you do you see it as a bigger problem or do you see it as you know a, a, a more balanced solution? Maybe one of the reasons why Dr. Levinson is saying hold back on allowing government to intervene is – because in all of his research, he's seen a lot of history where government intervention hasn't made it better. Uh, another way we can handle our complaints or our fears or our insecurities is reframe the issue. So instead of just complaining about the problem uh, that others might be creating for you or this Internet or the whatever social media might complain for you, reframe the issue um, and, and alter the way that you actually see the problem. Sometimes the biggest problem we face is actually how we're seeing the problem. Um, reframe the 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 issue as maybe not necessarily a social media issue, but reframe it as Dr. Levinson did as a as a you know First Amendment rights issue. That so now you're going to allow the government to start saying who and what social media companies can exist and and who can't exist. Be careful uh, how you see it. Also, be careful how you frame it. Change it. Instead of complaining and hoping for change, you could actually start working immediately to create the change that you seek. Go start implementing the changes that you've learned about, the changes. Go fight for it. Go run for office. Go become an advocate for the issue and fight and and start becoming a leader in the issue so you can at least um, influence it. There's nothing worse than the pains of having a problem that you can't influence, right? So improve your influence. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, like I'm going to be able to change it. Well, no, like, yeah, you could. I mean, there's many examples in our world where one person made a change, decided to take on an issue, and uh, many a Nobel Peace Prize has been won by these people. Many a a movement has started by just the one person. But they didn't do it willy-nilly. They didn't do it uninformed. They were informed. They saw the need, and they took on the calling to go be the change agent and become the change. Or last but not least, just accept what it is. Accept it. You know, Accept this is how life works and figure out how you're going to live your life in relation to it, uh, like manage your own data. Make sure you're not overextending. Get off social media sites that you don't need to be on. Go in and change all of your passcodes, passwords, and other information um, minimize what you put online, maximize uh, the messaging you want to be out there. I mean, there's a lot of things you still can do by just accepting the way this is the way the system goes and and uh, living that system the way you can live it, right? So you've you got a few choices. Instead of just complaining, you can also understand it, reframe it, change it, or ex- or accept it, 
and become the change that this uh, world and country needs. Anyway, just some ideas to give you a leg up in life. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. You know, we all have those times where we feel like the whole world is against us. No matter how much we voice our concerns, it seems like no one can hear us. On the other hand, we hear our siblings, children, and spouse complain, and suddenly we feel ourselves getting defensive or completely tuned out. Uh, so how do we complain so that people will actually listen? And and more than that, how can our voice uh, and how can we voice our concerns to create a positive change in the world Tina Gilbertson is a psychotherapist in the private practice in Portland, Oregon. She's the author of Constructive Wallowing, How to Beat Bad Feelings by Letting Yourself Have Them. She joined us a while ago to talk to us about her article, How to Complain So People Will Listen. We started the interview talking about – I asked her actually, how do, you, uh, how do I complain to people without turning them off? Right. Well, yeah, complaining is sort of an unattractive Thing. I think we are all kind of on the same page about that. Like, nobody likes a complainer. Right. We don't want to be a complainer. And it's just really hard, though, because sometimes we need to, we do need to speak up. Yeah. You know, about it, whether it's in a relationship or at work, we need to speak up about stuff. Um, the problem is that, you know, as, as, is, as with most kind of relational issues between us humans, things like emotions get in the way, and uh, we don't always handle those. We don't always know how to handle those in a way that um, is effective and uh, allows everybody to to have their uh, their own feelings and and so on. So I think um, whether you're complaining at home or at work, there are a couple of um, elements to an effective complaint that doesn't yeah. turn people off. Well, and, and complaint. Um, it, it is. It, it isn't that just even the word. It's like, okay, I want. Here's our complaint box. Yeah, right. So it's almost like we need a better word, huh? We have to invent a better word than complaint. Totally. Of course, you know, you can go the other way and say, I have something to share with you. Mm-hmm. you yeah, know, I hate you. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to let you know that yeah. your voice drives me crazy. Yeah, just to share. <laughs> um, That's interesting. So, what are what are some of the tools that we could use for the healthy complaint? Well, I think one of the most important things to do is to own the fact that you're complaining and Mm. own the feelings that you're having that are bringing you to complain. So too often the way we complain, and by the way, I am the worst. I'm not an expert at doing this in my own life. It's kind of an open secret that we teach what we need to learn. Absolutely. You know, I love talking about this because I... And this is something that I work on myself. It's just too easy to point to someone else's behavior and say, that's not cool. So, and of course, that just creates defensiveness. Yeah. But see, some people don't. Some people, they feel, that's why I guess in a way, complaining is healthy um, because if I don't do something with the feelings, if I just bury them and just go beat you up in my head, that's not going to help. But so I've got to just figure out how to share them with the person that needs to hear them. You're, you're saying, but own the fact that this is a complaint. Here it comes. I'm, I'm... Yeah, and, and by the way, if you do, if, if we do bottle these things up because we don't know that we have a right to complain, right. then, we, then we end up with a whole bunch of resentment and we get Mount Vesuvius. 
yeah. that eventually explodes, and then it's really ugly. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's then, so true. Yeah, then it's just, yeah. And the real issue is, you know, these are feelings that I haven't been able to share. Right. And they've just built up and built up, and they have a real force behind them then. And then, then it's almost impossible to say, even if you say the perfect words at that point, it's so loaded you know, your emotions are just so there, and people can feel how, how intense an experience you're having. Mm, totally, so, so true. kind of heavy. But uh, so, you know, the way you own a complaint is by making I statements. You know, I don't like it when this happens, or um, um, this makes me uncomfortable, I don't appreciate it, rather than you're being rude, you're being thoughtless, you're insensitive. Yeah. Is it like – so I can give some context. So when we're in a meeting – and I'm talking to my boss. When we're in a meeting and you were bringing up this and this, it makes I, – I feel this and then I tell my feelings. I mean because I, I kind of need to give them some context, right? For sure. And the, the little bit of what's different at work between work and home is at home or with friends, you know, within your personal relationships, you can have a reasonable expectation that that person – has a vested interest in caring for your feelings. Sure, yeah. Taking actions to to protect your emotional bond, and at work, it's you don't you don't really you can't really expect that to be a priority for your coworkers. I mean, within reason, you have to you can expect people to treat you with dignity at work, but um, for you to say I feel unloved when no one makes coffee in the break room, <laughs> you know that's not. As appropriate yeah. as it as it might be at home. Yeah, you're probably going to be hazed if yeah, you do that. Exactly. Right. <laughs> They'll tie so, you up somewhere. Yeah. With a boss or with a coworker, you really just want to. And this is the second thing I would say besides own it is point to very specific behaviors or specific action. Make a specific actionable request. So, um, like. You know, when when you're yelling at me, it's hard for me to concentrate on what you're saying. Hmm. Rather than I feel hurt when you yell at me. Yeah, or what we might normally do is just go in there and say you're rude. Yeah, right. And then the person can argue with you. No, oh, I'm not. No, I'm not. Nine out of ten people think I'm wonderful. That's I know. Right. So that's and why I you have to get specific, space. huh? But if you if you take ownership and you make I statements, people can't really debate as easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can't. They can't say your feelings are dumb. I mean, they can. Well, they can. But yeah, they can. But <laughs> yeah, they it, can. it's still your feelings. It's you're just. But if you're specific to a situation, I'm not saying, I'm not throwing out this statement that you're just a bad person. I'm saying, when you yell at me in those meetings, I feel attacked. I feel hurt. Yeah, and and if there's a you know if it's if it's elevated to the level of like harassment where it's totally uncool for the person to be doing that, I think it's reasonable to ask them not to. You know, please don't do that. Yeah. Uh, please don't make comments about my body. I don't like that. That's great. And that yeah. really is. I mean, because you have that right. Absolutely. And especially in that business setting. And you, I mean, and, and we also need in our personal lives those boundaries set, right? So for sure. I need you to, I, please don't do that. I won't, I can't tolerate that. Yeah, and how how often do you hear somebody say something like that? Like never, right? Yeah, it's right. Weird. It feels weird to say, and it also feels weird to hear somebody speak that nakedly about this is my need. Mm-hmm. This is what you did. I don't like it. Please don't do it. That simple. 
That's and you're what's cool about it is um, if you kind of dissect it like we're doing, it's not you're not trying to be abrasive. You're not trying to cause a fight. You're giving feedback. You're 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 basically saying this specific situation creates this feeling for me, mm-hmm. and then here's my request. Exactly. There's a there's a request. Yeah, and you want the request. Why? Like, why do you want it? Like a specific request. Um, so the person knows what to do. There's no point in complaining if there's if there's not an actionable request. What are they supposed to do? Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, if if there isn't a specific request, then you can say, you know, I just need to vent about something. Mm-hmm. But if what you're venting about is you don't like their personality, then you're kind of at a stalemate. Yeah. Well, many times in marriage, you hear people saying, "Well, so what do you want me to do?" It's like they don't. I don't know. I don't know what you want me to do. You're just complaining. You're here to just complain. Yeah, actually, I just wanted to vent. Well, well, actually, you know what? I think the answer to that question. So, what do you want me to do? Especially mm-hmm. in a married couple, is often. And I'm, in my mind, it goes right to that's the man talking. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Fix, I want to fix this. I want to get this yeah, done. Yeah, I want, let's, tell me what to do. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. If he wants to smooth things over. And maybe the woman doesn't even realize that what she wants is just for him to acknowledge that feeling. Yeah. To know how she feels and to care that she feels that way. Interesting. See, and we'd rather, I guess it kind of goes to maybe the way that we tend to the man might more traditionally communicate is we're not going to communicate about wanting to be validated in my feelings per se, but mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you when I need something done and I just kind of need you to do it. <laughs> just and do you know it. What? There's, there's some value in that for women in particular, because we are maybe a little, some of us are a little too likely to say, you know, other people's husbands help with the dishes <laughs> exactly. instead of yeah. making a request. Yeah. Well, but if you love me, you just do dishes naturally. Oh, yeah. you, would, you would realize how hard I work and you would want to help. That's right. And if I have to ask you, then it doesn't count. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. But if I mean, really, everybody's got, well, if, if you love me, we'd touch more. Well, I would touch if you do the dishes. Well, I'd do the right. dishes if you touched. You oy, first. Oy, oy. No, you first. <laughs> yeah. And then we just sit there and look at each other. This is Mad. Why I don't do couples counseling anymore. I know. You got tired of it, didn't you? Well, it's just somebody's got to give first. Yeah. And when you've got two people who are who are who have needs, it's like meet my need. No, you meet my need first. Well, I'll meet your need when you meet. Oh. I can't even. It's like a tongue twister. It is. It's like a bunch of twelve or not even twelve year olds. It's like a bunch of five year olds fighting over who pushed whose Legos over. I do think we uh, revert to childhood a lot around these issues of, of times when we need to complain. I think we feel powerless. A lot of us feel like maybe we're not allowed to complain. Yeah. Or, or, and we don't know how to do it effectively. So by, by being able, and so far you've taught us, if we, if we want to complain so people will, will be more able to hear uh, or listen to it, we would basically go in, maybe ask for our time. Can I just talk to you about something? Exactly. Well done, yeah. And then, and then, you know, you know, kind of give the context. In our meeting today, yep. you brought up this and this, and then use I statements. And I and and I made me feel this. I felt pressure. I felt whatever. I felt embarrassed. I felt humiliated. Mm-hmm. And then own your feelings. I know they're mine. I mean, I know you, that probably wasn't your intention. And I'd like you in the future that you don't call me out like that. Right. Yeah. And depending on the work setting, you may not want to get too specific about about your feelings. That's true, huh? Yeah. It, it may be enough at work to say, that makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's great. I comfortable with that. Again, that was Tina Gilbertson, author of the book uh, Constructive Wallowing, How to Beat Bad Feelings by Letting Yourself Have Them. 
doing what we can on the show to give you the tools you need to be a healthy complainer. If you're going to complain, let's do it in a in a healthier way. And really, let's try to just uh, lift the world by lifting our conversations. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Wednesday to you. Dr. Matt here, along with Terry and Becca. The gang is gathered, bringing you the latest uh, and greatest information you need to live healthier, happier lives. Today, no exception. We've got uh, lots of headlines. Uh, Apparently, we are meeting with, at the highest levels, Mike Pompeo has met with Kim Jong-un. That is a big deal. Either last week or Easter, depending on which source, the president or everybody else. Yeah, so this is now, he's the CIA director, soon to be the... Uh, Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. Now, this would be a huge deal, except for Madeleine Albright met with Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il. Yes. They they were hanging out for a bit. Well, yeah. (laughs) So this has been – this has precedence, but this is a big deal considering that Rocket Man is what our president was calling Kim Jong-un just a few months ago. Mm. So maybe the blustery aggressiveness of President Trump is working. Sounds like a term of endearment to me. Yeah, Rocket Man. If I mean, if you know Elton John, it's a total, total. There's five locations compliment. for the meeting that apparently they're discussing, trying to figure out which one works for all parties. Because in June, the president will meet with Kim Jong Un. Right. Which, by the way, is uh, I don't know if that's ever happened, because it's a legitimate. It's he's legitimizing Kim Jong Un to a level that he has never been that legitimate. Bill Clinton, a couple of years ago, went over there and met with Kim Jong Un to uh, get a American reporter released from yeah, jail. Right. So that happened, and that 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 was like seen as it wasn't the president, but yeah. it was a president. Yeah. So that's he he got some legitimacy there, I guess. But uh, nothing this nothing is... of a sitting president having a meeting this way, and it usually doesn't happen this way. Hmm. What Pompeo's doing in a normal meeting. In the past, I guess, yeah. every other president, you would have months of these types of meetings. Right. But Pompeo run over, here's some of the things we're hoping to do. Here's what they're lo- looking for. Bring that back to the, the to D.C. so yeah. they can discuss what, South, what North Korea wants out of this. And usually you have all these discussions before the primary uh, individuals in this discussion sit down and meet. And so that ev- everything's basically established. You just sign the papers. Right. But – None of that groundwork is going to be done essentially when the president sits down with Kim Jong Un. Well, he is the he's the world's greatest negotiator. So says himself. So this could be a very big moment. I mean, the the thing a lot of people worry about is that Kim Jong Un could just turn the table on him and. Well, the other side is Kim Jong Un isn't very experienced in this kind of no. high level diplomacy either. Yeah, I mean, he just has his the people he doesn't like. He just has them. Both of them taken can be out. seen as. Quirky in different yeah. ways. So yeah. no one's sure exactly what's going to happen. You know they're going to talk about Twitter. And Kim Jong-un's going to be – so tell me how you create so many great Twitter Right. Well, he, do you think he'll create a Twitter account for himself? For or sure. will have Kim Jong-un on Twitter? Absolutely. Wow. Maybe this is the moment where Kim Jong-un really just wants to you know, normalize relations, 
bring North Korea out of the dark and let's hope. We can, uh, you know, we can hope for that. Let's get to the rest of the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? Former First Lady Barbara Bush died on Tuesday evening. A family spokesperson said she was 92. Bill Clinton, who became close to his predecessor, George H.W. Bush, once both were out of the White House, said his of his late wife, Barbara Bush, was a remarkable woman with grit and grace, brains and beauty. She was fierce and feisty in support of her family and friends her country, and her causes. He tweeted, She shows us what an honest, vibrant, full life looks like. Hillary and I mourn her passing and bless uh, her memory. Two other former presidents, Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama, extended their condolences to the Bush family, with Carter saying that the former first lady touched the hearts of millions with her warmth, generosity, and keen wit. The matriarch of the family dedicated to serving, she urged volunteerism as a way for all citizens to participate in our nation's progress. Obama said Bush was the rock of a family dedicated to public service, and she lived for she lived her life as a testament to the fact that public service is an important, noble calling as an example of the humility and decency that reflects the very best of the American spirit. There you go. That's great. In fact, they always were joking that Bill Clinton was the other Bush child. Yeah. Just... She liked him that much. Once the politics were gone, they found out, hey, you guys are great we people. We kind of like each other. Kind of nice. And they always hung out. They found themselves in the same spaces yeah. because people like having former presidents around. Right. So they're like, hey, how are you doing? Nikki Haley, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, fired back at top White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow on Tuesday after he suggested that Haley was confused when she announced new sanctions against Russia that never came to fruition. Yeah. She was on, I think, CBS News and said that there's new sanctions coming down. Those should be announced on Monday. Monday, President Trump came out Monday and went, no, we're not going to do those. We're just going to, I'm not, not comfortable with those. So they backed up. So, hey, yeah, she's just a little confused. And, and then t- she said. On Tuesday, Kudlow said he's, that she was confused. And then she said, with all due respect, I don't get confused. She, she said this to Fox News as they reached out to get comment from oh, her. Oh, oh. So she's like, I don't get confused. Wow. On Sunday, she said the administration will be rolling out new sanctions against Russia. Monday, the president said we're not going to do that and uh, effectively threw her under the bus for misspeaking yeah. in some way. Um, speaking with reporters earlier Tuesday, Kudlow said that there was a momentary confusion Kudlow later told ABC, told ABC News that he apologized to Haley. There was a process mistake, and I shouldn't have said what I said. She wasn't confused. Yeah. He then said she might have been misinformed. <laughs> the, the amazing thing is she's not going to have that. No. She's not. She apparently even calls the president before she goes on the Sunday television shows mm-hmm. because she wants clarity because she knows he's kind of fickle. And Things now, are shifting, yeah. yeah. He was watching when she said that, so he was very unhappy that that was put out there because for him it wasn't settled. Right. But you'd think it's just they need a communications director. It's like they need a communications director. It's right. crazy. U.S. Supreme Court ruled that a statute requiring the deportation of non-citizens who commit felonies is unlawfully vague on Tuesday with Justice Neil Gorsuch siding with four liberal judges. Yeah. Which caused a little bit of a shock across portions of the country. Uh, the case involving a legal immigrant from the Philippines who was convicted of burglary in California. So a legal immigrant convicted of burglary in California. The Justice Department sought to deport him, claiming that his burglary was a crime of violence. Wow. A lower court ruled in 2015 that the deportation created uncertainty over which crimes may be considered violent. 
and that de- and the, the decision was upheld by the Supreme Court. So this was back in 2015. This yeah. was previous years, and they're just they 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 went too far on classifying burglary as violent, a violent thing. And they wanted to make sure they had a clear line of what's a violent crime because you start messing with that definition, and right. who knows what happens. So interesting that Neil Gorsuch went with the liberals. Caused some issues there. He shouldn't do that, right? That no, was the yeah. whole point. Well, that's he'll he may be fired, just like Sessions should be who he said he was, and Neil Gorsuch should vote exactly as the president wants him to vote. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Too bad he's in for life. Finally, uh, in the break, you were talking about some uh, future Fortnite-related activities that yeah. you'll be participating in. Here's a Fortnite story for you. Cool. A strong storm barreled through Greenboro, North Carolina neighborhood on Sunday evening. A young man helped his sister and nephew stay safe despite being caught up in a video game. I was sitting at home. I was playing Fortnite. And all of a sudden, I hear a bunch of noise, says Anton Williams. I look out the window, and I start seeing the roof come off the house in front of me. Next door, strong winds blew a family's home away from its foundation. I sit back down because I only have a couple people left in my game, and I was going to try to finish. Oh, my gosh. But then I start getting, it starts getting worse, and I started seeing power lines come down. So I told my sister and my nephew to come to the bathroom. Uh, while seeking shelter in the bathroom, he was still focused on his game. <laughs> Honestly, I was thinking about the game, but I was hoping everyone was okay around me. After the storm let up, William said he went outside to check on his neighbors who were all right. Wow. But I, it doesn't say how he, if he finished. Did he win that game of Fortnite? Well, that's the problem, and I'm seeing it with my own kids that the game is the game goes until everyone's gone and taken yep. out. And so you can't you can tell your kids to come up and eat. They just won't come up and eat until they die. Now, they can exit to the lobby. You can get out of the game. Well, but you but you're if you're in the top 20 or 30, you want to see how it how yeah, it finishes, why right? Why not just finish it? Let's just finish this game. But finishing the game is just watching somebody else play cuz you've already been eliminated. Unless you Unless you're still playing. Yeah, if you're so, playing, I get that. Yeah, my kids not to brag are really good. They should so, be able to yell upstairs and say, "Dad, check your privilege. We'll be up when we come up." That's what they should say, but that's, well, that's, that's when, your family dynamic. That, that's when they're grounded, yeah. <laughs> Check your privilege. Check your privilege, Dad. I'll be yeah. up when I come up. I mean, they can say that. Yeah. They'll just, we'll eat their food. <laughs> Go ahead and say all you want to say. Okay, wow. Yeah, I've got a, I'm going to be talking on television tomorrow about Fortnite and my views of Fortnite. <laughs> I just think it's it's just another game, folks. But it is a great way, I think, to access your kids because, boy, are they into it. Anyway, we'll be talking more about that up uh, in a little while. But first, we're going to talk about if you want to get uh, a little more progress in your life, then you need to control what you pay attention to. Interesting uh, information coming from Harvard Business Review up next. Life gives us a million things to do uh, at any given time, doesn't it? And with so much attention demanding uh, or so many things demanding our attention, we can feel lost at times, overwhelmed or out of control. Mara Thomas is an award-winning speaker and author who wrote an article that shares the advice to control your life, control what you pay attention to. And uh, we're honored to have her on the show. Mara, thank you for your time and being with us today. 
Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I love the idea that um, really much of life is just being able to to focus your attention and you'll get the most bang for the buck on whatever you pay attention to. Absolutely. We, our lives are dictated these days by distraction. By we, we react to everything. Most people tell me that they go to work and they do whatever happens to them. And as a result, we don't get enough of the things that matter to us done. And I believe that attention management is the solution. That's the key. Now, and, I mean, obviously there's a lot of things vying for our attention, but um, – some of, I mean, some people it seems like struggle with attention and focus more than others, and um, so do they. Do they really then have? Are they at a deficit here? Well, I think that um, it, it is very difficult. I, I understand from psychiatrists that it is increasingly difficult to diagnose attention deficit disorder as a clinical case because everyone is showing symptoms all busy professionals let's say perhaps not everyone but and people out in the business world um, are super distracted and are showing symptoms of attention deficit disorder but sometimes that's just situational it's just environmental and when we remove ourselves from that situation then our symptoms go away as well and so it's really difficult to tell um, which it is yeah. And so um, I guess part of this is uh, some of it might be a diagnosis, but e- even no matter what, it seems like gaining more and more skills, understanding how to focus our attention um, w- will help us in the end. Um, I-, I guess we-, we have taught ourselves a lot of ideas, and some of them, you tell me your take on them. I, I mean, multitasking, we talk about that. We talk about all these other things. Are Are these... Is it real to multitask or is this just just another idea of, you know, not being attentive to one thing? Oh, I mean, I think there are – everybody has seen all the studies that show by now that multitasking is not helpful. But attention management really, to me, it, it encompasses so much. I believe that we need to make a shift. We used to talk about the ability to – achieve results in our lives, the ability to get more done, the ability to be productive. And to me, productive is, is about um, about achieving your significant results, leading a life of choice, being the kind of person you want to be. And the path to that used to be what we would call time management. And, and it encompassed all kinds of things, to a certain extent, managing distractions and also um, you know, prioritizing and calendarizing items and things like that. But that we've always known that we can't manage time. And so I think it's time to put a new frame around this idea of our ability to be productive to achieve our significant results. And so I call that attention management. And it really encompasses all um, sort of all of the aspects of, of that ability to live a life of choice. It is about controlling your distractions. It's about being present in your moments. Uh, so it encompasses mindfulness. It's about the ability to engage your flow because we know that flow is a documented psychological state where we maximize performance and achievement. It's the ability to really um, engage your your focus and uh, and and tune out distractions and really maximize your concentration. It's the ability to unleash your genius because all of the behaviors that we engage in, like multitasking and and constant distractions and reactivity, actually undermine 
our brain power and our ability to learn and be creative and solve problems. And ultimately, that all leads to our ability to achieve our significant results, to lead a life of choice and to be the kind of people that we want to be. That's great. Is um and what's cool is it's so based and steeped in a lot of the a lot of research as we go along as you were just listing all of those. I'm like, holy cow, that's a whole research area. That's a whole research area. Um mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel like maybe we are in a world too where we're trying to have it all, and um, and and is it possible to have it all when it comes really to attention management, or do we really just need to kind of find what's the one thing, maybe the two things that we have to really focus our attention on and go after the fewer things instead of trying to do everything. Yeah, so that phrase, having it all, is a little bit to me like the the idea of balance, right? What, people talk about balance a lot today, too. We really have to define the terms, right? Because having it all might mean something completely different to one person than it does to another. So I, I think attention management is the ability to have it all because if we can't, if we can't do all those things, if we can't control our distractions and engage our flow and be present in our moments and, and maximize our focus and achieve our significant results, if we can't do all those things, then we miss those moments in our life. I believe that everyone has unique gifts to bring to the world, and so my job, I see my job as enabling them to bring those gifts in a way that energizes and inspires and motivates them instead of overwhelms and stresses and exhausts them. And I think that's where most people are today. So where's the best place to begin? Uh, give us some tools, some ideas for how we could, uh, where, first of all, where we should begin. I guess, do we start with distractions? Um, and, and what are some things that we can do today to begin to make this happen? Yeah, absolutely. So really, um, we have two types of um, distractions that we need to manage our attention around. We have external distractions and then we have internal distractions. So let's take the ex- external distractions for a minute because remember this is the path to productivity, living a life of choice, achieving our significant results. So in terms of the external distractions, I believe that the path begins with three steps. First, you have to control your environment. So a lot of us work in open office floor plans these days where it's really loud and it's chaotic and there's interruptions not only from our technology but from other people and everybody's talking and computer clicking and unwrapping things and and it's really just stressful. So we need to find a way to control our environment where we aren't slaves to our environment. If we put some boundaries around our environment, give our coworkers the message that we would prefer not to be interrupted, they will eventually get used to that and they will honor that as long as you honor that. Second step is we need to control our technology. So we all act as if we are slaves to our devices, but we never intended, I think we've forgotten as a society that our devices exist for our convenience. Not so anyone in the world can interrupt us all the time. And with more and more studies about persuasive technology and how it can manipulate our behavior, our only defense against that is our ability to control our technology, shutting it off, do not disturb, airplane mode, silent, not vibrate, shutting off the automatic download on our email, shutting off all the indicators, all the push notifications, not all the time every day, but taking control of that so that we can control our attention. 
And then the third step is, is in terms of the external distractions is to control our own behavior, and often that's the hardest part. But that's where mindfulness practices come in. That's where um, we recognize when we are allowing our attention to be stolen and when we're not controlling our technology, when we're not controlling our environment, because the more distracted we are, the more distracted we will be. Mm. And, th- and that undermines our, uh, it chips away at our attention span. And so our normal environments typically, our normal lives typically just undermine our productivity and our effectiveness. But we can begin to build up our focus again and to build up our attention span and to take control of all of those distractions. So those are the steps. Control your attention, control your, uh, sorry, control your environment, control your technology, control your own behavior. Those are the steps to external distractions. Then we have... Oh, okay, I was just going to say, it just seems like um, how this would impact our psyche if we think that, yeah, I just I can't do what I meant to do. I'm, I mean, it's almost like we 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 fail to realize how much power we actually have over all of this. That it, it could it could really tip us over. Absolutely, and that's why I I teach a. Um, a, a methodology that is that is based in attention management. It's a path to productivity. I call it empowered productivity. And it's exactly what you said because we have forgotten. We need to take back our our power, our control. We need to recognize that we are not slaves to our technology. We are not slaves to our environment. Um, there was an article in a pay, in a in a big business paper once, and it was talking about this guy was talking about how he, in order to get anything done, he had to go up to his um, cabin in the Catskills where there was no internet access and really very little, um, you know, the, inter- the um, electricity was even spotty. And I, I thought to myself, you re- I can't, why do you think you have to do that? You can shut your internet right now, right here. You can <laughs> shut off your phones. You can, you have the power, but somehow we just, I don't know, maybe our willpower is depleted to such a point that we just can't do it anymore. Yeah, but, no, Totally. Talk about uh, the internal side of this. Internally, what do we do to um, be able to to control the distractions, the internal distractions? Yeah, so I think the biggest source of our internal distraction for most people is that we are running down our to-do list in our head all day long, (laughs) trying not to forget all the things that we need to do, trying to remember that we need to... Um, you know, make the phone call and fill out the expense report and we're out of milk and the kid's soccer game is at 4 o'clock and, the, and just all of that stuff that is swirling around in our head at any moment. And so I believe that the secret to that is, is to solving that problem is a workflow management process. Because most people tell me that they, the way that they manage the details of the, their lives, the way they live um, that, that life of choice and be the kind of people that they want to be, is some combination of managing all of those responsibilities with lists and sticky notes and remembering and flags in their email and dry erase boards and all of the in the notebook that they take to meetings and all of this combination of stuff and people tell me that they write things down to help them remember but the truth is if you have if you had a workflow management process something that wrangled all of those things in a way in a way that served it up to you when you needed it, that organized it and made it 
logical and easy to act upon, then the secret to a workflow management process is that you write it down so you don't have to remember. Mm. And that's a whole different perspective, and it changes those internal distractions and allows you to be your best self and do your best work and bring your gifts to the world. Do you write it down every day? Is it? Is it? I guess that's part of the workflow uh, process you have to create. Yeah, so... So to me, it's, it's, I use a puzzle analogy, right? If you were to do a puzzle and the pieces were scattered all over the house, that wouldn't be an effective way to do the puzzle. And if you stop and think about why is that not an effective way to do the puzzle, right? You can't see the whole picture. It's ineffective to run back and forth. Each piece is out of context. It's hard to tell. Um, it's disorganized. You can't sort it. You can't organize it. You, you don't even know how big the puzzle is. Mm. Right? All of the same reasons that it's not a good idea to do a puzzle with the pieces scattered all over the house is the same reasons it's not a good idea to manage your work with some combination of sticky notes and lists and, and email and your brain and dry erase boards and all of these things. So the first step for a workflow management process is that you have to get everything in one place. And I believe that if you do a, a big um, sort of dump and you gather all of this stuff, you collect it all and you get everything out of your head, then really you don't have to write it down every day. You just have to – you do it once and yeah. then you add things You add things as they come to you and as they happen to you. But, but your things are organized in a way instead of you, you've got one long list on a piece of paper. When something new comes up, the only place to write it is the bottom of the list. Yeah. But then you realize, well, it's more important than the bottom of the list. So that's when you start in with the arrows and the stars in the highlighters on your pad of paper, right? Yeah, and yeah. then you're like, oh, this is a mess. I better start over. I better, I better rewrite my list. And so then it just spirals from there. So it's having so a way true. to manage all of that is uh, and, and, Well, and then there's old school and there's new school, right? There's, there's all – we have all this activity on our data and our – I mean on our tools, our phones, our um, laptops, our computers – but then we also like I'm person I'm a person that loves writing. I'm a person that loves seeing my handwriting and paper and so yeah, then now all of a sudden I'm using two systems and uh boy, it really is it's something we need to probably become very intentional about. Yeah, so I got a, I've got another analogy for you, right? So the 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 formula for productivity is not that different than the formula for sports. Let's take golf for example. If you had the best set of golf clubs, if you had the same set of golf clubs that your favorite PGA pro plays with, it doesn't make you a PGA pro. Right, right. right. And, it, and if the PGA pro goes into the local Goodwill and buys whatever used club happens to be for sale at Goodwill that day and then attempts to play the Masters with that club, you're likely to bet against them to win the Masters that year. So the formula for a great game of golf, or to be great at any sports, is both the methodology, the know-how, plus the tools. And it's the same is true for productivity. I think we have all of the best tools available to us that have ever been created in the history of civilization, right? We've got tablets and, and yeah. laptops and powerful computers and apps and software and all this stuff. But without the methodology to use them properly, it doesn't make us a productivity pro the same way it wouldn't make us a golf pro. So true. So true. Um, again, we're speaking with Mara Thomas, who is the author of two books, Personal Productivity Secrets and Work Without Walls. Uh, also, you can go to her website, marathomas.com, to get more information. And Mara, as, we, uh, as we're as we kind of winding this up, I, I think 
we live in a day and age where if there's ever been a time where we need to get um, some attention management in our children, in our families, it's today. How would you suggest we we address our families and, and try to improve attention management with our kids and our families? Yeah, it, it absolutely starts um, at a young age. I mean, I'm not a child psychologist, and I would never, you know, try to advise people on how to best raise their kids, but their world is getting more and more complicated, more and more distracted. And so I think really helping them understand that all of these things are in their control. Now, the power, the problem with kids is that they want it, right? They don't want to be away from their devices. They don't remember what it, you know, they don't have any frame of reference for what it was like before, uh, you know, before we had the Internet in our pocket, in our smartphones, right? right? So I think teaching them, um, leading by example is the biggest, uh, the biggest solution, and really that goes not only for for our kids and our families, but really in business, which is my area of expertise. If the leader isn't present, if the leader um, isn't exhibiting attention management, if the leader, sometimes the leader in the organization or the leadership in the organization is the biggest impediment to the team's productivity. That's why I wrote Work Without Walls, because the leadership behaviors have a huge impact on the productivity of the team. And it's one thing to to learn attention management and workflow management practices, but if you work in a company that just doesn't allow you the opportunity to say, you know, close out your email occasionally so that you can focus on other things, or, you know, you've, you've got this crazy loud environment or your dro- your boss is dropping in on you every two minutes, you know, yeah. hey, I need to talk to you about that, and can you think, because everybody's going to drop everything for the boss. So you need to model, whether you're a parent or a leader or both, right, you need to, le- you need to model the behaviors that you want to see in the people who interact with you. Yeah, no, great stuff. Mara Thomas, thank you so much for your time and uh, your insights. Again, you can go to marathomas.com to find out more about her work, her her insights there, as well as her training opportunities and more about her empowered productivity uh, concepts. Um, Really, the more we understand how to to be attentive and in the space and in the presence, uh, the more we can actually maximize our output and our our flow. Powerful stuff based in a lot of pretty awesome research as well. We'll continue the journey, do a little Coach's Corner straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's my house, come on! Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. Um... Yeah, when we talk about life management or focus or attention management, I guess at some point we all need to identify, too, what we're going to focus our attention on. Um, It it was an interesting find. I I was reading a book called Essentialism by uh, Greg McEwen, and one of the things that he taught in the book is uh, the word priority – is a word that, uh, you know, we've all heard of priorities, right? We've got to have our priorities straight. Well, the word priority has, uh, by definition, means the singular one thing that's most important. And up until really about 200 years ago or so, priority was always a singular term, meaning you have one priority. 
But we live in a country, a day and age, um, a world that believes that we have multiple number ones. And we now have to prioritize our priorities. And then we have a belief that not only do we have more than one priority, we have five priorities, and then we need to make plans for our five priorities to make sure that we get our five top priorities done every day. And then that stretches to, okay, that's just your work priorities. Now you have your home priorities, and then you have your personal life priorities. And we then assume that now we can go choose what of all of our 15 priorities are the most biggest priority. Come on. Have we not completely messed that up? In the end, I'm convinced um, if I gave you uh, two years to live, let's say you had received a diagnosis, you knew you had two years to live, what would eventually, what would become your number one priority? What's the number one thing you would do if you knew you had two years to live? How would your life change? How would you reorganize? Now, let's, let's forget the two years. Let's just say you've got two months to live. You have two more months in your life of existence on this earth. What would be your priority, really? What's going to be the key? That, that report to your boss? You got to get that report done? Well, I mean, it's an important report. I mean, I do have two months. Okay, forget the two months. Let's say you have two weeks to live. You're down to two weeks. Two weeks of your life. What is the number one priority for you? What is the, what matters? Now, let's forget the two weeks. Let's say you had two days to live. So isn't it amazing when we shrink your life, your priorities get so clear. They're so clear. So you might want to just start identifying very clearly what your number one priority thing is. What's the one thing you would do and spend your last two days doing? How about your last two hours? What would you spend doing your last two hours of your life? Because whatever you do in your last two days or two hours is probably the priority of your life, period. That's the only priority. Everything else, I'm not saying it doesn't need to be done. You need to mow the lawn, right? You bought a house. But don't pretend like it matters. It doesn't matter to the same level as your priority. And uh, why I bring that up is because if we could actually dial in our attention even higher, but we don't have our attention focused on something that's important, then what good is having more attention? What good is having more focus if it's not focused on something that is absolutely essential, right? You don't want more time, more focus, more energy on something that's not important, do you? I mean, I think all that would create for you is more guilt, more confusion, more misunderstanding, more frustration, more exhaustion. So maybe the first thing we ought to do is identify what direction we should be heading, what's our true north, and then once we know what true north is, let's worry about our efficiencies. Let's get really good at going the direction we're supposed to go. But a lot of us are are really just trying to improve our efficiencies, and we have no clue where we're going. To be really efficient at something we shouldn't be doing is just plain crazy. We don't need to be awesome at useless stuff. 
We just, our life, we don't have the time, especially if we only have two months, two weeks, two days, or two hours. You know, when we've got two years, we can mess around a little bit more, we think. But it can all change on a dime, right? And um, so what are you doing to make sure that your most important priority, singular priority, is first? Um, And, you know, how do we take these ideas to those priorities? That's actually – because I had taught time management. I taught communication skills in corporate America. And what I realized in the end is to make corporations more efficient, not half as important as making our most important priorities work for us. So anyway, we are uh, doing what we can to help you focus on what's most important for you. So answer the question. What are What is your top priority, singular? What is it? And whatever it is, I'd have it top of mind, top of list, top of your day. Doesn't mean you don't have to work. You do. But it also doesn't mean that in the middle of the day, you can't still take care of your priority, your number one thing. We'll continue the journey, folks, doing the thing we can to help you be the best that you can be. Up next, we'll be talking about how to complain so that people will listen. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, we all have those times where we feel like the whole world is against us. And no matter how much we voice our concerns, it seems like no one can hear us. So how do we complain so that people will actually listen? How do we share our point of view so that people will hear it? Uh, Well, uh, we had interviewed Tina Gilbertson, who's a psychotherapist in a private practice in Portland, Oregon. She's the author of the book Constructive Wallowing. How to Beat Bad Feelings by Letting Yourself Have Them. She joined us a while ago, and we talked about uh, some innovative ideas for how to complain so that people will listen. We started the interview with me asking, you know, we have some the power to heal, but it comes from listening, right? Yeah, and, and the trick is to hear the emotional need behind what they're saying. Yeah, it really is, because underlying all the emotion, there's a pain, mm-hmm. and the pain needs to be at least dealt with. I call the emotion the vital signs. You see signs of pain, right. and we use those signs to get down to the deeper issue. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. And it can be tough what to, to if, if you're not used to looking for those needs, because people. it's easy to get caught up in the content. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I, I did not say that in the meeting. I said this, and now right. we're arguing about the content instead of my emotion here, the issue. Common response to a complaint is no, it wasn't. No, I didn't. No, that's not how it was. And mo- it's then we get caught up in this thing that no one can can win, and then the emotional need is sitting there going, "Hello, <laughs> what about me? Hello? What about me?" Yeah. So um, let's just look at an example of something that might be a complaint. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Um, she was talking about a relative who's she said is really negative, is always down on. And I said, "Well, what kind of what kind of?" complaints are we talking about? What? Give me an example. And it was, she will say things like, oh, these two friends of mine are so um, passive aggressive, you know, mm-hmm. they never, they never, they never let, they're so, they never let me in on anything. And so she's complaining about the behavior of these two friends. And it really had a big, strong theme to me of, she feels left out. Yeah. She's mad at them for, for helping her feel left out. 
so the, the response to that, and, and the reason we were talking about this um, is that uh, the person I was talking to didn't want to absorb all that negativity. Right. She was really weighed down by it and just wanted her to shut up because she couldn't take all the complaining. Um, and you said earlier about, a, you mentioned the word boundary. Yeah, some, yeah, so I, yeah, a boundary or like a rule, yeah. Yeah, and that, this can be really helpful to the person who's complaining is, and help you at the same time. You can actually draw a boundary by holding up a mirror to them. Yeah. So what I mean by that is like, let's say she's complaining about these two friends who never let her in on anything. It's really simple. You just say, it sounds like you feel kind of left out. Which is just holding, it's like the mirror. You're just holding up what you hear her saying. Right. And so you you don't need to take it all in. You don't need to absorb all of it and be angry about it. You just kind of reflect back what you hear her saying. Right. And that and you may feel like she's frustrated with that response because what she wants is to unload her feelings onto you. She doesn't know what to do with them. Right, right. That's but huge. When you, when you don't let her unload her feelings onto you, you're helping you both at the same time. You're preserving your boundary. You know, that's not mine. That's not my, my pain. Mm-hmm. But you're also holding up that mirror and saying, well, here's what it sounds like you feel. And people who are really out of touch with their feelings may be like, what? I don't even get it. What do you mean? No, I don't feel left out. What are you talking about? That's true. But that doesn't mean that you're not right. Right. And then what, what's interesting is if you can hold your space there and not attack but, and understand it and search it and try to, and try to get to the deeper need, yeah. then they can trust you. And you're also going to eliminate some of the emotion. Right. And, and uh, yes, and another step you can take after you've said, well, it sounds like you feel really left out, is to offer that validation of that sounds awful. Mm-hmm. That sounds painful. No wonder you're upset. Yeah, instead of trying to fix it or... Yeah. Argue. So if I bring up my ideas, my issues, my points, I'm just going to further the fight. You're kind of every one of the things you're teaching us is to get into them. Just stay with them. It's their stuff. But of course, that's hard if they're complaining about you. you. Yeah, absolutely. Or your mother. It's even harder. Right. (laughs) That's why mom always gets thrown in there, huh? Yeah. But it really is. I mean, it's that's isn't it really the most basic human need, Tina? Is just to have somebody care enough to want to understand. Oh man, I I second that so strongly. Yeah, I think it is a very basic human need to, uh, for just compassion and understanding. Hmm. You just need another. I think that that's the the secret to um, therapy. Yeah. Ultimately, just very essentially. To be seen and witnessed by a compassionate other human being who accepts you for whatever is going on with you in that moment, I think that's the biggest part of healing. Yeah. You know, people talk about talk therapy and they say, well, is it really therapeutic just to talk and hear yourself talk and talk about your feelings? No, it's not the talk that helps. That's why you can talk all day about (laughs) how you feel and not feel better. It is how that's received. And and having somebody... Accept you as just what you are. Yeah. No judgment. That's huge. Yeah, that's huge. That is huge. We're, we're all so busy. We, it's hard for us to remember to do that for others. Yeah. And that's the healing. That's the healing. So, so if somebody's bringing you a complaint, don't think of it as a chance that you're going to get beat up. You could just see this as a chance to create some healing, help somebody, help understand somebody. I mean, I mean you can also eventually share your side, some other in some other moment when the emotion's right and the timing's right. That's it. But right now I need to understand you because you're the one that has the pain. Yeah, that's it. But it's so hard. No, totally. 
yeah. when people are complaining in a way that is not, they're not making I statements. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone says to you, Matt, you know, you, I can't believe you said that to me. How, how inappropriate and yeah. hurtful. You're such it's, a jerk, right? You're such a jerk. I mean, of course you're going to feel defensive. This is why it's such a tough nut because where do you, where do you intervene? Where do you start? Yeah. When the, when the complaint is more, feels more like an attack, it's because it's not worded well. Right. And then when you've received a complaint that's worded like an attack, it's a lot of work to try to un- untangle yourself from your own defenses and yeah. say, wow, it sounds like I really hurt you. I'm really sorry about that. That's so true. One of our last guests said, listening is the mother of all skills. It is the number one skill all humans need to have, and yet it's the one that still eludes us because our emotions get so caught up into it. Yeah, we're so into our own emotions and our own needs. We forget, even to, with people we love. Yeah. Well, as we wrap this up, Tina, give us, we have about 20 seconds. What would you say is the one key of everything we've talked about, the one thing that we need to remember when it comes to complaints and validation? With complaints, own it. It's your complaint. Own your feelings. And with validation, you don't have to agree to validate. Mm. You just need to see their point of view. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. And just because I just because I do understand you doesn't mean I agree either. Right. Yeah, that's but cool. I, I want you to know I understand. If I were you, I'd probably feel the same way in your shoes. Good stuff. Again, that's Tina Gilbertson, uh, uh, the author of the book Constructive Wallowing, How to Beat Bad Feelings by Letting Yourself Have Them. And uh, just great insight, I think, for all of us to understand it's we have to communicate. In the end, it's going to be through communication that we not only understand each other, but that we change the meaning in life and make life better. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here, along with Becca and Terry. We are gathered, been working all night, sorting through every possible story. And uh, number one story, I think, in my book, just because I love her think she's awesome. Barbara Bush passed away, 92 years of age, mother of a president, uh, spouse of a president, and the mother of a presidential candidate, mother of two governors, and then sadly the other Bush boy that not very many people know as much about. Jeb? No, the other one. See? What other one? There's another man. There's another Bush child, male. Hugo? Hugo Bush? Hugo? Is there a Hugo? I don't know. I'm just... Yeah, I don't remember Hugo. Um, <laughs> she had six kids. One passed away, but a uh, wonderful woman, Barbara Bush, died at the age of 92, 72 years, I guess, married, and married the first and only man she's kissed. That's pretty cool. Uh, and Becca pointed out last hour, not only cool, very accurate. Very accurate. She nailed, she nailed it. She Found the guy, kissed him, married him, boom, 72 years of bliss. That is a long marriage, 72 years. Well, and especially— That's amazing. But she also loved being in the White House. She uh, she wrote a journal regularly through the White House so that she could remember everything. And just a wonderful first lady. 
there's a book from a, I believe a USA Today reporter worked with her. It's a, it's an unauthorized biography, but she worked closely with the Bush family. There's permission, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But, um, uh, they used she the reporter got access to her diary. Oh wow! And was able to use some of those events and talked with the you know the husband, the son, all former presidents, all these people discussing her and her life, and that should be out sometime next year. I believe that's great. Um, and and very you know very tough talking. Also, I mean, she loved uh, President Bill Clinton, who was a thorn in the side of the Bushes for a while. Um, because he cut her husband short four years, mm. but they're they're actually really good friends. So he many is, would say he's the other president that he, she he, raised. He is the one that said no new taxes, and then yeah, oh new, sure, you're gonna, new taxes. You're going to blame Herbert just, Walker. Just saying, he see how you are. We were having a good moment there. I know, I'm just, just, man, it's not like, good feelings. Come on, they all love each other. <clears throat> she was great. Anyway, uh, prayers go out to the Bush family. Um, not not easy, but. Again, she lived a great life, and President uh, Bush, Junior. Uh, what do we call him? Not Herbert Walker. Bush George Junior. W. Bush. Bush Junior. Yeah, Bush Junior. He just said she lived a great life. She's, you know, it's sad, but she she lived a full, wonderful life. All right, let's get to the other headlines. Anything else we should be paying attention to, Terry? The U.S. informed the Kremlin that it has uh, no intention to impose new sanctions on Russia, according to Russian state media. Uh, Russian news agency TASS, T-A-S-S, yes. not sure what it means, but that's what it's called, citing an unnamed Russian foreign ministry source reported that the U.S. told the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C. that there are no plans to add to the sanctions announced at the start of April. I can confirm that the U.S. has notified the Russian embassy that there will be no new sanctions for some time. The source is quoted as saying, uh, Nikki Haley, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., announced Sunday that there would be fresh sanctions against Russia, but was thrown under the bus by the White House, which said that Haley was confused. The Washington Post reported that President Trump personally inter- intervened to put the brakes on planned new sanctions. Nikki Haley told Fox News, I don't get confused. The White House later apologized. Huh. Well, and so these sanctions would have been added because of Syria. Yes. They already had, had put some sanctions on them because, because of, of the... Poisoning, the poisoning in uh, in Britain. So these these would have been new sanctions because they're right. shoring up a dictator that yeah. used gas to kill people. And as I heard someone say yesterday, it's interesting. Every time you start thinking maybe there's really no Russian connection, what's going on? Then the president does something like this. Yeah. It seems like maybe something that would happen if an individual was being pressured by, say, someone from Russia to not do, do new sanctions. Right. He comes out and like, oh, we're not going to do sanctions. That's why everybody thinks that Russia may have something on President Trump. Yeah. But at the rate that information comes out about President Trump, we may know a lot. I mean, what more will surprise us? I don't know. Hmm. Well, (laughs) stand by. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Tuesday definitively ruled out a Senate vote on legislation aimed at shielding special counsel Robert Mueller from political interference. That is not necessary. There is no indication that Mueller is going to be fired. I don't think the president's going to do that. And just as a practical matter, even if we passed it, why would he sign it? Yeah. So McConnell, he does that, and people are like, oh, he's spineless. He's not going to stand up to the president, but he's looking at it like it'd be pointless because he'd never signed the bill if we even passed it. And there's a lot of people that are terrified. There are a lot of people that don't want anyone to go near upsetting Trump because that's their base. 
So, so. McConnell said in an interview with Fox News, uh, he goes, I'm the one who decides what, what we take to the floor. We will not be having this on the floor of the Senate. The Judiciary Committee in the Senate will soon vote on whether to advance legislation which has bipartisan support and co-sponsorship to protect Mueller. So they're going to try to yeah. advance it anyways. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer responded to McConnell by urging Congress to head off a constitutional crisis at the pass rather than waiting for it to be too late. Well, and is, it used to be that there was a time where you would vote on things even though they wouldn't pass just yeah. so that you could say we voted We voted on it. Yeah. No, and, we're not even doing that. And the that. president didn't sign it or whatever, yeah. No. Uh, every, or since January, each book at the top of the New York Times bestseller list had one thing in common. It's what? President Trump. Oh. Right? So you had Fire and Fury. Uh-huh. That was uh, number one until a book called uh, Russian Roulette took, it, took <laughs> its place. Okay. Then that was dethroned by Dear Madam President, an open letter to the woman who will run the world. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Yeah. And that one is expected to be taken down by James Comey's A Higher Loyalty, which went on sale yesterday. Wow. So that's been every top number one seller. So he is a ratings grabber. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the books aren't positive toward no, him. No, not at all. But, I mean, that's the thing is, he's the subject, that's what's selling. Interesting. And and in related news, how many books do you read a year, do you think, Matt? Uh, 30. Thirty a year? I mean, actually, read. Yeah, I I peruse probably seventy. Wow! Because I we get them for the show. Okay. Well, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I looked through several of those too. But then I guess books on tape. I didn't even think of that. Oh, That's wow. probably another twenty. So Americans are still reading, but they're spreading their book consumption habits over array of formats, according to a new Pew Research survey. Yeah. Book consumption. By volume has remained relatively unchanged over the past five years, while consumption of digital and social media consumption has skyrocketed. About three-quarters, or 74% of Americans, have read a book in the past 12 months of any format, a figure that remained largely unchanged since 2012. Overall, Americans read an average of 12 books a year, while the typical American has read four books in the past 12 months. Yeah, okay. Right. That's each, still amazing. Right. Each of these figures is largely unchanged since 2011. There has been a modest but statistically significant increase in the share of Americans who read audiobooks from 14 to 18%. So we the would audio listen to audiobooks. Yeah, yeah, just a little For the now. for the sake of the the survey they call it reading audiobooks. It's yeah. whatever. Uh, but it remains the case that relatively few Americans consume digital books which include audio and ebooks to the exclusion of print. So people aren't exclusively digital. Yeah. That's interesting. I love audiobooks, but then if I love the book, I buy the book. So I listen to it, and if I really like it, then I buy the book, and so I can mark up the book. With the same statistics, if you look at the other way, 26% of Americans say they have not read any part of a book within the last year. Wow. Not even touched a book. Not even any part of it. Not even the title. No, I don't read books. Huh. So this whole idea that the book industry is dying. It's a myth. It's a myth. Except for the 26%. Except for that. I don't know if that's higher or lower than 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It's kind of it's kind of comforting. I think I would have expected social media to sort of start to replace book reading. It's nice to know that people are right. still out no, there exactly, reading. Exactly. See, that's how it's got to work. I tell you. I tell you. Well, um, okay. We're going to continue the journey straight ahead. We'll, we'll be talking with Dr. Brian Willoughby right here from Brigham Young University about why relationships are like working out. They really are like getting in shape physically, tearing a little muscle, building a little muscle. Mm. Sometimes it takes a little pain to grow 
uh, you know, the guns you need in life. Same is true in our relationships. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you love stronger. It's that time, folks. Dr. Brian Willoughby is with us. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University. He also uh, has research focuses where uh, his research ends up focusing on young adult dating, relationship patterns, as well as uh, sexuality, cohabitation, marriage formation. He's the author, co-author of the book, The Marriage Paradox, and he's just about to uh, start finals with his students here on campus. Time to start the pain. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this is where this is where we see how good of a teacher you are. That's right. But it's easy, right? I mean, yeah. they'll do it. It's fine. Yeah, it's easy for me. I just have to give the test. Yeah, I have to take, and then I have to grade it. But and then, do you actually sit and grade every test, um, or do you have your TAs do that? One of my classes, I have TAs. One of my classes, my upper division class, I grade. You grade because yeah. you've got a, and it's a smaller class. Smaller class, yeah, forty students. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh, the life of a professor. Yeah, it's rough. So cushy, and then you go get another su- – how many? You get like three or four sweaters a year. Yep, yep. You got to have button your, ups, <laughs> your button Some polos. I love it. I love it. Uh, well, I wanted to talk to you today about an article you wrote about why relationships are like working out. Yeah. It's a pretty cool metaphor. It is. It works actually really well. So we need – you. you're really saying we need to be buffed and ripped like <laughs> – um, like kind of a somebody that goes to the gym regularly. Right. And the key is how do you get that way? Yeah. How do you get – now, because it's uh, – well, maybe just teach us the metaphor. Right. So so the idea when you're working out, right, is that you you got to kind of break down your muscles. you got to tear the muscle tissue a little bit. Yeah. That's what you're doing when you're working out and, and, and lifting weights. And the idea is that as your muscles then repair themselves, they get stronger. Yeah. Right? You've broken them down a little bit. They they Your body responds by getting, getting stronger. stronger. So you get – Harder and harder, heavier, heavier weights. Keep doing that process. That's how you build muscle. The idea in a relationship is that unlike most of our perspective, which is, well, we just wanted to be happy right away. Yeah. And then it gets it goes from a 10 to an 11 to yeah. a 12 over time. Re- healthy relationships are the same way, is that they have to overcome small stressors to stress, stretch themselves, tear themselves maybe a little bit. But through that process, they can get stronger too. But do we – it seems like a lot of us think we we shouldn't have stressors. Right. Yeah, we think that way, but that's not true. Not reality it's, it's in not, any way. It's not really how it works. Right. I mean, so is it true then that the more stressful the marriage, the more problems you've had, the better – I mean if you respond to it and use it to get stronger, it, right. you should be in better shape. Right. That's the idea. That, that stress is actually we, – we feel stress whenever there's change. So so this isn't about like having major marital problems. Yeah. It's about a marriage that encounters change, which every marriage does. Yeah. So every marriage is going to deal with stress. And so how do we build off it? That's the idea. What, what, I, what I tell my students a lot is that you want to get past the hurdle metaphor that we have sometimes, which is there's hurdles in the way and you jump over them and you get back on the track and yeah. you keep going. Yeah. Right? This is much more of a we take these opportunities to break things down and grow stronger. Again, like the muscles. Yeah. We, we want to get better when we go through these stressors, not just get back to where things were. Which is why I guess we, we don't want to avoid because some people just have a conflict avoidance tendency. So if right. you avoid the conflict mm-hmm. or if you overlift, if you do it too hard, right. 
you'll either get you'll damage yourself or you'll never grow. Right. That's the other part of the metaphor, right? Is you don't jump into the gym the first day and say, I'm gonna go bench press three hundred and squat four hundred, <laughs> right? Pick up those seventy five pound yeah. bar and start, How and start hard could this doing be? some presses. You don't do that, right? You're gonna injure yourself. Same thing in a relationship is that and this is actually a, a, a tie to dating a little bit, is that a lot of people say well, this guy, I've been, you know, I want. I'm thinking about dating him, and you know, he's in the middle of dealing with some major depression and right. some major addiction stuff. It's like that, that, that's when maybe there's too much stress early in the relationship. Is that you? Hopefully, you're dating someone that's relatively healthy. You're getting married. You're in a relationship. You're going through these small stressors. Things like who's going to do the dishes? Who who's who's going to take out the trash? How are we going to deal with you know you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat? Right? These right. little things that we need to take head on, like you said, not avoid. Build a relationship strength so that down the road when I just lost my job or we're transitioning to parenthood or we're dealing with something more major, we've built up the strength that we need in the relationship to lift that 75-pound weight. Yeah. That's um, that's actually it's such a good metaphor because it's so different too than you marry the perfect body. Right. You're saying we've got to actually go co-create it. Right. Yeah, I was I was I was working with a group a couple weeks ago, and I was drawing on the board and trying to explain this principle, and 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 I was drawing kind of a, a pyramid and said our, our perception of relationships right now is that you you get a good education, you become a good person, you become mature, and then yeah. you kind of build all these layers, and then at the very tippy top, you find someone else that's built all the layers, yeah. and then you marry. Yeah, it's and like then a cherry. it's the perfect yeah. little cherry on top. And I, I erased all that, and I I built the bottom layer again, and said, what if you started down here with someone? And you build the layers of the pyramid together oh, instead of cool. just one by one. And yeah. that's the idea is that you're building towards something together yeah. because that's where that strength is going to come from. Yeah. And I guess that's why – I mean because a lot of us – and you hear more and more people waiting to marry until everything's lined up. Right. But there is so much benefit to going through a lot of that together. Right. Yeah. And that, that's, what, that's what forms core commitment. That's what forms the foundation that healthy relationships need. Yeah. Um, but implicit in your model here of exercise, physiology, matching, relationship growth is there's going to inher- be inherent discomfort and it's exhausting. Right. Exercising is hard and it hurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And th- this this is the – scary reality I tell people a lot about relationships is that it does take work. It takes effort. And just like the gym, right, we go for the first time and we come home after the first time and we hurt. And we maybe hurt for a couple days afterwards. Like, I'm never going to do that again. (laughs) Right. But but any person that that is is fit will tell you is like, you got to keep with it. Right. You got to keep doing it. It gets better. You start to feel stronger. You start to feel better. It's the same thing in a relationship is that it's it's easy sometimes to avoid those small conflicts. Well, I don't want to fight with you. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. It doesn't matter. But then we're missing those growth opportunities. We're missing those opportunities. And it is get tiring. It does get exhausting. It does mean that sometimes when I'd rather be watching a movie or be with my friends or just reading a book that I have to engage with my partner. But that's it's it's kind of to another metaphor. It's an investment metaphor. Is that you're putting investments in so that inevitably in your life, when yeah. you have those big issues come up, you're ready for them. Well, and it seems like little issues won't even seem like a big deal because you'll you're going to be so much stronger than the issue ever could be. You know, you're going to be you're going to be at a whole other level. So if I if I can lift a hundred pounds pretty easily, then I could easily handle 100-pound issues every day, right. and it's not a big issue. Right. But then, then I then I guess I, I don't need to go looking for the 150-pound issues. Right. But if they come, 
I'm I'm on my way. Yeah, and and that's the healthiest couples. Their mindset is again, they're not looking for the big stressors, yeah. not looking for the big things, but they don't feel scared or overwhelmed by them. Mm-hmm. Right? They they feel like, hey, we've done we've done this for ten years, we've done this for fifteen years, we've gotten through this, this, and this. We can do this together. Yeah. And that that mindset is actually in in stress theory. There's two big parts to to overcoming anything, which is perception and resources. And that perception that can build in a relationship over years is so important. We can do this. Oh, we yeah. can do this together. Oh, I never thought of that. The, yeah, the just the idea that you you can handle this. What's right. what's the big deal? Right. And then, um, yeah, it's not like you need to go create bigger problems, but life's going to give you enough. So, what what are the exercises that you see as a professional that would that do the best strengthening for the relationship? Yeah. So, so one of the the good things that couples can do is actually identify disagreement and talk about it, like about really small yeah, stuff. Handle it. Yeah. That's one of the things that couples like to kind of and like little stuff. Like, what did you think about the movie? Oh, I didn't like it. Oh, okay, I won't talk Whoa. about that anymore. Right? It's like, oh, really? Why? Yeah. Right. Is is find those little moments where you disagree about movies, TV, yeah. something in the news, something small, and engage with it and talk about, it, learn about why you disagree with it. Stay in right? it. Stay in that kind of moment and and build those resources to talk through. And, and it's easy in those little things. At the end of the day, yeah, you can say, matter. okay, well, we don't, we don't. It doesn't matter. We doesn't matter if we agree on that movie. But we're building that that mentality of we work through these types mm-hmm. of things. That that can be really, really helpful. The other thing that can be really helpful in terms of small exercise when the slightly bigger things come up, right? Maybe it's about money, maybe it's about our kids, maybe it's about intimacy, is scheduling time to talk about that. Yeah. Right. So we're gonna be in, engaged in the process. This is along the lines of what we call proactive coping. Let's sit down and talk about this. Hey, Saturday night, we're gonna sit down and talk about the money. And we're going to engage in that process a little bit more. And don't do it in the moment when we're maybe a little heated and arguing, but we're going to schedule time when we're going to talk through that. That's cool. You do those type of things. Again, you're building this pattern of we talk, we're open, we're vulnerable, we we try to compromise. When the bigger issues come, you'll have those resources. It seems like, yeah, you need to also know how to do it. Because if you – like I I had a television shoot once where I went to a gym with a television crew and I was starting an exercise plan. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was like the worst experience of my life. I had a chest cold. I couldn't breathe. The lady just killed me on air. And, um, but I didn't know what I was doing, so everything was complicated. And I thought, man, if I, had, if I had been doing this for six months, that would have been a no-brainer with a chest cold. Right. I just would have known what I could do right. and what I couldn't do. So some of, I guess, the, the idea of talking about tough stuff – if it scares you to death, it just means you've got to go practice it more. Right. Yeah. And, and the other part of this, going back to the metaphor, is that what does any good person do, hopefully, when they go to the gym? And what is a personal trainer going to set up with you? Yeah. Goals. A plan, yeah. Right? What What is the weight loss goal? What is the lifting goal? Same thing is in – very few relationships do this, is sit down and say, what are our goals? Yeah. Like, where do we want to be? We do this with money. We do this with right. education, with our kids. But how many couples sit down and say, where do we want to be in five years? Yeah, because that would determine what plan or regimen we need to follow. Right. Yeah. What What are some of the specific things we want to work on? Like, hey, we've in five years, we've decided we, we, we really want to be better about not bickering with each other about the kids. Yeah. Okay. Well, now every time we notice that there's a little disagreement with the kids, even if it's about like what goes in their lunch that day. Yeah. Let's, let's make sure we identify like, oh, there's a kid issue. Let's it's talk so- about it. It's so true. I and I see that with clients that I've worked with where you I mean they like I've walked up to clients and in my head I'm like you're still married? Like right. that's amazing, but they are really strong. Mm-hmm. They've they've learned because they had the crud beat out of them 10 years ago right. that now they 
they have got goals. They do have a regimen. They do have patterns and habits. I guess some of this, too, is about practice. This isn't something we do once. You can't just go get fit by going to the gym once. Right. you got to do this daily. Yeah, you do it over and over again. And then the nice thing, because sometimes when we talk about this type of thing, people sit and say, well, this is why I'm single. This is why I don't want to get married. This is way too much work, (laughs) right? Is that just like exercising, it gets easier over time and in in some ways enjoyable over time, right? Is is that you do the practice, you stay consistent, and everything tends to get easier. Even when you get sometimes to the harder things, it doesn't feel like this is weighing our relationship down. Yeah, it's right. hard. We wouldn't pick it. But it feels like, hey, this is actually a great opportunity for us to even get stronger. It's so true. Do you sense um, – again, by the way, we're speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby, who's an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University. You can go to his website, drbrianwilloughby.com, drbrianwilloughby.com, to get more information about his books and, and his work and speaking and everything that he does. Um, that's interesting that uh, does a single person get the same workout dating multiple people mm-hmm. that a married person would get working out with one person in the relationship? Um, in some ways, yes. So you can certainly get experience with conflict resolution, with communication skills, with all those other things. Um, but one of the interesting things we see in the research is that there's starting to be a lot of research coming out because we see more and more of this in the 20s, right? right. Serial monogamy, right. in and out of committed relationships, is that one of the other things I am training myself to do is that once things get hard, I leave, Yeah. right? Well, we had this big fight and I broke up with my girlfriend or I had a big – this issue yeah. came up and she broke up with me, right? Is I'm learning over time that when when I can't quite get that weight up, I put it down and I go find – a different way. Yeah, a different exercise yeah. machine yeah. that I think works a little bit Less better. Less impactful. Yeah, and it's it's hard to get past that mentality when we decide to actually commit. And so yeah. that's, that's actually one of the concerns relationship scholars have now with our relationship trajectories is that we've got a lot of people that aren't getting married until they had five, six, seven long-term committed relationships. And the, and then, like I said, that mentality that you've trained yourself for is kind of hard. Yeah, this isn't permanent. I right. can get out anytime I need to get out, right. anytime it mm-hmm. gets hard. So we need to practice. We need to understand there's going to be discomfort and fatigue. It is a building process. And I guess the thing about it I've noticed um, with relationship or with real exercise is if, you, you know, once you've built a certain physique, you just can't stop. Right. The minute you stop, you get flabby. Yep. Is that yep. true in a relationship? It is, yeah. Relationships can have apathy just like muscles can have apathy. Is that if you're not consistently dedicating time and resources to your relationship, it can it can weaken. And, and a very common point for that for a lot of people is when they have kids. And yeah. it's really easy to have the, the parenting aspect of the relationship overtake it and forget about the romantic part right. of the relationship, the marriage part of the relationship. And so it's really important for healthy couples to say, we need a maintenance routine. We need to date each other every week. We need to have time alone to do things together to maintain that relationship. That's a, It's a great way to look at it, like a maintenance routine. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be that somebody is in the middle of finals or their dissertation, mm-hmm. and it's it's going to be six months of very limited time together. Right. But that might just mean, okay, then how do we maintain right. a healthy connection yep. without over, over expectations or over or under, you know, yeah. delivering? And, and again, back to weightlifting is that as I realized, okay, I had this five-month stretch where I was trying to maintain, but I lost a little bit of muscle mass. Mm-hmm. What I need to do, rededicate myself. Okay, the next three months, I got to build that back Come up. back and, and so, Okay, I was, I was really busy at work this month. Next month, I need to make extra special time for my relationship. 
Um, what do you do? Because one of the things I do see, too, happening, and I don't know if it's generational. I don't know what it is, but there seems to be a generational focus more on independence. So mm-hmm. some of what we're growing here is a unified, shared relationship, right. which would kind of demand we're both doing it, mm-hmm. versus just two fit beings that are independent and not necessarily needing each other. How do you balance independence versus interdependence? Yeah. So so first, what I say is that if your goal is a long-term committed marriage, then you always lean towards interdependence yeah. and not independence. Because you do. We, it is a generational thing we see with millennials and in that generation that there's much more of a tendency to live parallel lives, right? We both have right. our jobs. We both have our hobbies. We both have our friends. We're both strong independently. We're both strong independent people. But over time, it's really hard to maintain that, right? Because there's always yeah. going to be conflict between those two parallel lives. It, it counter, it contradicts that uh, visual I talked about before, which is you've built something together. You yeah. have shared goals. You have a shared vision of of what you're doing. Um, and so, so I, I I always say lean towards interdependence. But at the same time, you do want to make sure you do have some independence. That there's not codependency yeah. or dependency in the relationship. Right. And the best way to to kind of assess that in a relationship is to ask yourself a question. Do I feel comfortable making my own decisions? If my partner's not there, can I handle work, it? Can I handle it? Can I take the kids here? Can I drive here? Can I make this call? If you can do that, you're fine. If not, then maybe you need to talk as a relationship about, okay, how can we make sure that we have a little bit of autonomy yeah. in this? And, and in the, again, you can work on that together, even though it's about independence. Totally. You can support each other and say, okay, yeah, I, I realize I've been taking all the financial stuff and you feel kind of disengaged. Let's hey this part and this part and this part we're gonna have you kind of take over. Let's and rotate. I'm willing roles. to help. I'm right. willing to mentor you and support you, but I want you to feel a little bit more of the independence. It's almost day. like when you're exercising, you might exercise more of your right side than your left side, but right. that's probably not healthy. Like right. you need balanced yeah. core and balanced mm-hmm. life. So make sure. I mean, and I, you could proactively see that we're kind of growing out of balance. Right. Where one person doesn't know how to do the other stuff, right? It's it's like, oh, you're you're doing the biceps, so I'll yeah. just I'll just do that. I'll do yeah. the legs. You do your the legs bicep. are huge, yeah. <laughs> and and you don't want to do that again. Each you want to make sure you're a good independent uh, person that can can have have confidence in yourself. Yeah, um, is there any sign? Can you just like you can in exercise? Can you overdo relationship workout? Can you can you be doing too much on the relationship that you actually hinder it? Yeah, rela- relationship workout fatigue. Yeah, burnout. Yeah, yeah. Uh, potentially. Yeah, in part of that, you'd see um, the other areas of your life kind of suffer a little bit, right? So right. if I find myself that I'm so preoccupied with my relationship that I can't concentrate at work, that I can't sleep very well, that you know where our kids are kind of getting in trouble because they're not getting enough time, you know, you, you can you'll see those signs probably in the other areas of your life. Hmm. Your relationship probably won't suffer because it's getting. Right. Lots it's of getting attention. a lot of attention. But if you sense that kind of imbalance, then it might be time, like like we were saying in the other direction, it's like, okay, not that I'm dismissing my relationship, but I, I'm starting to struggle at work or at school a little bit. And we need to say, and again, you work together yeah. and you say, how do we re reshuffle things a little bit? That's good stuff. Dr. Brian Willoughby's his name. Again, go to his website, drbrianwillaby.com, drbrianwillaby.com to get more information about uh, his writings as well as um, his uh, book that he released uh, last year, The Marriage Paradox. You're not going to want to miss it. He's the man, the myth, the legend, and he'll uh, keep your love strong and fit and ripped with abs to spare. Dr. Brian, thank you so much, and we'll continue the journey, do a little uh, empty news straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 
Well, as you know, we like to we always like to give you the latest uh, in the empty news headlines, and um, this is a there's, there's just a bunch of crazy stories. If we've told you once, we've told you a hundred times. If you are going to involve yourself in a high speed chase or a low speed chase, make sure you've got the car loaded up with gas. Police say a U-Haul van driver led them on a 20-mile interstate chase in New Hampshire that ended when the vehicle ran out of gas. Duh! They arrested 52-year-old Edward Alexander of Newark, New Jersey, late Wednesday. He faced arraignment on uh, counts of reckless conduct, disobeying a police officer, and drunken driving. It wasn't immediately known if he had a lawyer. But uh, state police said an officer approached the van in Salem. The driver appeared to be passed out. As the officer got closer, the van took off, nearly hitting him. Police pursued the van on Interstates 93 and 293 to Manchester. They said the driver threw a a bunch of credit cards out of the window during the chase, and the the van ran out of gas on a ramp. Rough. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Man. Think ahead. Just want to know if he was, like, throwing out the credit cards to try and distract the police, (laughs) destroy the evidence. Oh, look at the credit cards. They might be stolen. Pull over, Reduce the weight of his vehicle because he doesn't have any gas. Uh, We were talking about earlier um, a news story where a train loaded with human waste has now been stranded in um, Alabama because of a scheduling issue. So it really is messing up a town because it smells. Yeah, somebody needs to flush it. Well, uh, be careful what you call your hometown, though, because an Iowa man had to was taken to court over a lawsuit for calling his hometown smelly. An Iowa man threatened by city officials with legal action for saying on a website that his hometown smelled like a rancid dog smelled like rancid dog food. He won a free speech lawsuit Thursday when the federal judge prohibited the city and further from further threats and awarded him damages. Josh Harms, by the way, this is his name, represented by the ACLU of Iowa, filed the suit in U.S. District Court earlier this month asking a judge to block Sibley officials from suing him. City officials said they'd sue if he didn't stop criticizing the town's odor problem from Iowa drying and processing. I guess that's a company that uh, makes high-protein animal food supplements from pig blood. Just of all the things you could say, I mean, mean, you could say some pretty horrible things. I just – But just don't call him smelly. smelly. But, I mean, I've been next to a business that processes, you know, pig blood, not actually other animal waste, and – they stink. But just, you, you you know, this the city was saying, don't call it that or we're going to take you to court. Well, they lost. Apparently, the First Amendment still, still works. In December, the city's attorney, Daniel DeCotter, uh, sends harms a letter saying that he was hurting the community with his website and threatened a lawsuit if he didn't stop. Judge Leonard Strand approved on Thursday's permanent injunction agreed to by the city and harms. The injunction prohibits the city from making further threats. Now, take care of that. It allows harms to talk to reporters and continue to publish websites critical of the city odor issue. Maybe what we should do is spend all of that same money to uh, to just take care of the odor issue. Febreze. <laughs> Bring in like, you know, uh, train loads of Febreze. There we go. You can't go wrong there. How come those are the trains that never get stuck anywhere? I know. That's, that it's Febreze train human needs waste to be train. somehow. <laughs> Wasn't that human waste train? Wasn't that a song in the 70s? Oh man, you're asking the wrong person. It's probably a different. It was probably a different. I'll bet it's coming out soon, though. You know they come oh, yeah. back. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, Minnesota Firehouse. Listen to this. Fire, uh, firefighters came to the rescue for a group of Minnesota high school students. When, uh, By the way, this is Becca's hometown, probably. This is? Near her hometown. Uh, a blizzard struck during their prom, and the Forest Lake Fire Department opened its firehouse for three hours on Saturday so the students could pose for prom pictures. Because they didn't have anywhere to go to have their pictures taken. With, uh, you know, 15 inches of snow out in the... In the streets, they didn't have anywhere to go. So they went to uh, the fire station. They're calling it hashtag blizzard prom. The students posed in their formal clothes on fire trucks and firehouses. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. I think that's really cool. They just stepped up, saw a need, and then said, come on over here. That's so Minnesota. That is so Minnesota. Well, come on over here, don't you know? Got a little firehouse over here, a little hot dish for you. Can warm your toes while you take your little prom photos, don't you? Don't you know? That's it. It's like you live there. It's like it's like you grew up there. I I did, yeah. You've you've got the accent down perfect, but when you talk, I might even have my own prom photos from a, fire. a firehouse. Yeah. Do you? No, I don't. Okay. Wish I did. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to touch a nerve. No. Well, yeah. They probably would have been. They probably would have looked better if they had been in a firehouse. I think we all have those like really embarrassing oh, prom photos from way back when. I ruined more prom photos. I really did. I hated. I mean, I, as as photographic as I am, and you know, as as good as I look on film, I ruined a lot of pictures. That's what you got to do. It's like paying your dues. It's a rite of passage. Right. Well, and I ruin just, a few prom photos, and then I don't know what it is. I just don't like pictures. My wife loves them. She takes them everywhere we go. Really? If it weren't for her, I I don't know what we'd be doing because I wouldn't be taking any of them. (laughs) Anyway, good stuff. Uh, We're going to continue the journey. Up next, we'll go down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation and find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. And then we'll do a little Coach's Corner. That's all straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's time to uh, go down and visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Uh, today, it's Jerem and Jason. Hello, gentlemen. Yeah, I was expecting some Gator Ball. I know. We forgot. But uh, we, I promise we will play Gator Ball tomorrow. Jason, I'm, not, I'm, not here. Here. I'm not here tomorrow. Jason. Okay, how about you play it the next time Jason's on, whenever that is. Oh. And you have to guess the day that I'm going to be on. <laughs> We're always guessing. wrong. You if you're wrong, then you actually have to play Gator Ball. Oh, I'll play it. I'm not afraid of no Gator. Proposition. I'm not you, afraid you of aren't? no Gator. Hey, um, yeah, we, I want I for, we for sure you've got to enjoy it because I think the reality is it it could change baseball as we know it. I think it could save the league. Um, that's 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 high praise for uh, it's for a sport like that. No, it's it's that okay. real. It's that real. I've been thinking about it for years. You chum the baseball baseball uh, uniforms. You mm-hmm. chum the lines and you chum the bases, and then you throw eight gators in. So instead of uh, the pine tar that you put on the bat, yeah. you put chum on it. Chum, and then Makes you just sense. set the gators free. And then it's just kind of a free-for-all. But other than that, it's a regular game. Other than that, it's completely uh, the same. <laughs> it's completely the same. But th- there are issues. If you run across a gator, you can't run out of the baseline. So you got to jump the gator. Then it's gator jumping. It's exciting. It's exciting. 
It's compelling and rich. Compelling and rich. Okay, here's a question for you. Uh, now, I hear Mo Longi may be um, trying to get on the gymnastics team. He was, but they, he couldn't get out of the pit. <laughs> so explain foam pit. what happened to poor Mo Longi, and is he okay? Uh, well, he was. He and some other BYU football players were at uh, gymnastics practice when they all decided they they all had the opportunity to be able to jump into the the foam pit. Yeah, how well, fun they all that did, be? and it was fun, and they got out. And when Mo got in, he tried to get out. <laughs> he, he couldn't get out. Well, Mo, Mo's a four hundred ten pound guy. He's da- he's trimmed down to three ninety seven. <laughs> he's three ninety seven. He's, he's, he's lost almost fifty pounds. Yeah, lost wow! But three. here's the thing. Yeah, it's kind of like the treasure, like you know, the toy in the in the uh, the cereal. Yeah, that you kind of dig around to find the toy. <laughs> yeah, Mo Longy, one of his socks <gasps> is somewhere in the foam pit. Oh, they should like give a prize. That's what I mean. So yeah, if you pull out the Longy sock, you get what? You get to keep it. And yeah. use it as a sleeping bag. A stinky <laughs> And use it as a comforter. Um, There's no comfort in that smell. That I know. I was thinking, I don't know if that's a winning proposition, but that would be kind of claustrophobic to be, you know, standing up in the foam pit and having to get out. How, I mean, this is scary. It, it is. And we, we talked about this on the show yesterday. It's. The the foam pits are like the uh, like the ball pits at like at the restaurants where the kids like to play. Yeah. The more you try and move to get out, the deeper yeah. you get you right. get stuck. It's like quicksand. It's like quicksand. Exactly. exactly. So there's I mean, if you go to YouTube, you can learn how to get out of quicksand. But I don't know that Mo Longi did that before he went into the probably pit. did not yeah. prepare for Darn that. Darn it! Always prepare. I'm you, not going to learn how to get out of quicksand until I'm in some, and then I'll just look it up Yeah, at that moment. If you can get like, your phone, but maybe your phone's in the quicksand, too. That's true. Be careful. You know what? You're right. <sighs> An ounce of prevention. An ounce of prevention. Hey, um, did you hear the—did you see that article about Gary Trost, the old BYU center? I did. It's one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. Really? <laughs> Is there a new one? No. Well, what, Which article are we referring to? What story to? did you hear? Well, you talk. Well, he was in the news a couple weeks ago because he jumped in front of a fight at a jazz game. Yeah, he's a he's a guard. He's a, he's a security guard. Yeah, there. he guards the team. The one I'm referring to is Dick Harmon's story from when Gary was a player. What? Oh, I didn't hear What's that. Your story? Yeah, which mine's, one were you? Mine's serious and amazing. No, mine was the guard one. Oh, okay. Mine is not. What is hey, the serious and amazing? Dick Harmon uh, tweeted uh, tweeted an article that he wrote about uh, a story of Gary Trost, where in Idaho. He pulled uh, a woman from a burning vehicle and saved her life. What? And saved a whole family. You need to read it. It's okay. amazing. Gary Trost. Right? Sorry, I thought we were on the same page with no. the same story. No. He saved a woman's life two minutes after he pulled her out, and she basically was had a bunch of broken bones. This, did this happen recently? No, no, no. This was like when he was a player. Oh, Wow. He, he is was coming t- back from a vacation. You, you need to read. Like I'm going to go he, find he it. He right gets now. into the front seat. He he pushes his six foot ten frame. His legs against one part. Gets ten inches of space to get her out. Two minutes later, the vehicle blows up. They got what? the rest of the family out. It's amazing. You what need to read stud. it. Like yeah, Gary no, that's Trost, huge. Hero. Okay. Yeah, you guys need also to have Gary Trost on. on at jazz Vivint, games. Yeah, at Vivint Smart Home Arena <laughs> Saturday I mean, that, and next Monday. That's the bad part is that you're now you're known as the security guard guy, but really you're a lifesaver and a killer center. Those were the days. <laughs> yes. Those were the days. But at least you're not stuck in a ball pit or a 
sponge pit. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how we transition from Gary Trost being a hero to the next question I'm going to ask. What? But it's going to play a role in our show today. What? Do you own or have you ever worn a fanny pack? Oh, I have worn them for years. I it was hot. I mean, just when I just when I wanted to be cool, of course. Are you curious as to why that will be a topic today on our show? I am. Why that why? is called the tease. Oh, you just you done just teased us. <laughs> That's a great tease. Yep. So every fanny pack wearing person is like, I've got to listen now. They're like, finally, my segment. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering when. <laughs> Quick Google search reveals there's one for nine bucks that's teal if, in shiny if you want. Oh, I already Nike have a teal one. one. Nike, well, we're Nike school, so yeah. that's what we'd have to wear. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what else is on the show other than fanny packs? <laughs> that's basically it. Is that uh, it? <laughs> no, we're going to ask the question and, and try and answer it. In the next five years, what's the peak for BYU football? Ah, cool. Okay. Also yeah. going to have Ed Lamb, assistant head football coach, <laughs> also coaching the linebackers. Yes. Also the special teams coordinator. Uh, he's going to join us. We have a lot to talk to Ed about, so he'll be on the program. Plus a deep dive into Taysom Hill's uh, tenure with the Saints and who wore it better fanny pack edition, A.J. Middleton of the strength and conditioning staff, or Jamal Williams. Oh, interesting. We have an, ex- an exclusive photo that everyone else could have seen on Twitter of A.J. Middleton from the strength and conditioning staff. Sporting a, a fanny pack, apparently. Yeah, and he's like one of the like the buffest coaches on campus. Oh yeah, I mean, so second, we can't yeah. dog on him too much because no. he'll come. He'll crush you, intimidate us. Don't oh, whatever he nice does guy. when he walks in, I'd have him check his fanny pack. We're like, check your yeah. check your firearms and fanny yeah. packs. Please. You don't, you never know what's in a fanny pack. All right, guys, sounds like a killer show as usual. Again, they did it again. They teased us with the fanny pack, and now I'm riveted. I can't stop. I must go watch the show. That's straight ahead. If you just keep listening to BYU Radio, you're not going to miss it. Or go turn it on uh, BYU Television as well. You can watch both. Our hero of the day is a commercial pilot who safely landed a Boeing 737 full of passengers after shrapnel from an engine explosion breached the captain. That uh, commercial pilot, by the way, was a Navy ace pilot and one of the first women to take the yoke of an F-A-18 fighter jet, according to reports. Southwest Airlines pilot Tammy Jo Schultz is 56 years old. She kept her cool Tuesday as she brought Flight 1380 down for an emergency landing in Philadelphia when an engine exploded midair, according to passengers. A huge thank you to the Southwest crew and pilot Tammy Jo Schultz for her knowledge and bravery under these circumstances. God bless each one of them, passenger Diana McBride wrote on Facebook Tuesday. The pilot, Tammy Joe was so amazing, she landed us safely in Philly, wrote an Instagram user. Anyway, one person died in that, uh, in that situation um, after their window exploded and created a vacuum, pulling the person out, uh, almost out of the window, except for the fact that uh, other passengers held that person in and then were able to do CPR. So... Unbelievable experience, and uh, the strength and insight of one pilot um, saved a lot of lives, I think. That could have gone so many different directions. So she is the hero of the day, Tammy Jo Schultz of uh, Southwest Airlines. That's the show, my friends. Again, we can't do it without you. We're so grateful you're with us, and we will continue more fun tomorrow right here on the Matt Townsend Show. But until then, stick with us. BYU Sports Nation is up next.